Consequence Podcast Network. You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I don't know about magic. I... I always called it The Shining. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn. Who is sitting across from me? Uh, this is Michael Torrance Rothman. No? Not trying. Really, You're not trying. It doesn't really work You're there. You're just not trying. Oh, I got one. Uh, yeah. Michael Redrum Rothman. Yeah, that one's pretty good. It's got there's alliteration. Like, yeah, there's like, well, it's not alliteration. Oh, wait. Oh, no, it is alliteration. Yeah, it's not too I bad. I forgot what alliteration was for a minute. <laughs> We're fried. Yeah, we we're fried. both fried because it is. We are both culture writers yeah. in a world where people demand lists at the end of any year, but also any decade. Yes. So we are not just putting together end of decade list. Well, end of year lists. We're putting together end of decade lists. Mm-hmm. So I think that you and I have been have been cramming our brains full of so much culture. It's insane because like, we cover music. Yeah. Film. Yeah. Television. Yeah. You get the internet. Yeah. (laughs) Both of our sites cover everything. Everything. And so we're writing about everything. And so thank you for giving us uh, the grace to be a little bit scattered sometimes. Yeah. And thank you for checking in again, because I think we lost some listeners after after our Castle Rock episode. People weren't happy with our review of Castle Rock season two, to which I say, have you seen it? I know. That was mean. No. No, no. We don't want to start that way because... I know. I'm (laughs) totally kidding. You've probably already turned it off. Like, fuck these guys. I knew it. Look, we didn't love Castle Rock season two, but if you do, we support you. Have you been watching anymore? I no. well the first four because I had to write had, up yeah the thing is I have to watch them all because I'm writing up Easter eggs over at the AV Club which you should check out because I think I'm doing a good job of spotting them we should continue to share them on socials every week yeah 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 and like uh I need to rewatch the fifth episode which I fell asleep during when I was initially watching it so I need Same. to rewatch that and I don't think they sent me screeners for the follow up no so I'm like mine got taken away probably because they saw <laughs> my tweets. <laughs> They're like, um, get them away. Uh, no, it was you know. funny when you said that you didn't have access to your screeners anymore. I I wondered about that and I went and checked and I still did. Yeah. So that means they took your access away. They did. How do you feel about that? I feel robbed. Listeners, no, I, I, listeners, do you realize that we are suffering for our art? That we are being like cut <laughs> off access? Which because, is crazy. Because we didn't love something? Yeah. That is literally how media works now. Yeah. And I should probably be careful talking about this. Yeah, we this. should. Because we could just be totally written off uh, the, the audio. 
Dude, the, the 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 creators of audio are gonna, are gonna take us away. No, th- th- what if they censored audio at this point now? Oh God! Hey um, man, uh, I think we're heading there. Yeah. So today we're gonna be talking about the film adaptation of Doctor Sleep. Next week we're gonna be talking about the book. Doing a little switcheroo here. So we're switching things up. We usually do it the other way around, but since the movie is coming out on November seventh, which November, is yeah, yeah, which is this Friday, mm-hmm. which is the day this episode drops. Yep, that is. The day you can go see the movie, and then we're then I think it'll actually be kind of cool to go see the movie, and then maybe because you probably haven't just read the book, so then after seeing the movie, comparing it to the book and everything, I think it'll be fun. I think it's a good smart idea. Sense because look, we're not doing this chronologically right now. We're going from we're only doing the Doctor Sleep book because the movie is out there. So why not do the movie first? Right. You know. So no, I'm excited to talk about it. Did you finish your reread? Uh, I'm like very close. Yeah, very close. Uh. Yeah, it's like I've probably literally got about like thirty pages left. Oh wow! But I've read it before, yeah. So I know what's going to happen. But it's interesting, and I'm very excited to talk about the movie because I think we both had a positive reaction to it, which is good. And I mean, it's just another win for the man Flanagan. It was a great way to celebrate the eve of All Hallows' Eve, which was. October 30th because they did a limited engagement screening for Dr. Sleep and we went all bundled in the cold because it was a very cold and rainy night actually here in Chicago yeah uh which was uh preceding our wintry Halloween which was yeah we had a crazy kind of a it was like Halloween it was it was snow was just pouring from the sky I felt like we had more snow on Halloween than we did all, all winter. of winter last year yeah, <laughs> yeah. what did just, you do just, on Halloween uh I stayed inside and uh, watched uh, oh in um in search of darkness, which was that new uh, horror eighties documentary that was like four hours long or something like that. Oh my god! So, wait, wait, what is it about? It's it's about every year in the eighties they go through like all the major films. They have talking heads like hey, Heather Langenkamp in it. This sounds amazing. It's a great. It's it's awesome. It's Where is such it a blast. It's uh we I just got a screener, so it's gonna be they they had to do like a whole uh, Indiegogo um campaign for it and everything. Is it gonna be on Shutter or something? I imagine Shutter's gonna pick it up. That yeah. sounds really good. It's a lot of fun. I literally didn't know about yeah, it. Yeah, sequentially every year, which is wild. And they get so many talking heads on this. And it's they got this, the word of the thing sounds just like Stranger Things. And they, they basically go through all the titles from when they were released. And I mean, Mick Garris is on it. Uh, wow. actually, a couple of things. Um, John Carpenter's on a couple of uh, the segments. So does he talk about video games? He doesn't talk about video <laughs> games. Yeah. So, what are we talking about? Uh, Death Stranding? Um, no, but... <laughs> He's ahead of the curve when it comes to video games. I love John Carpenter when he talks. Yeah. I love when he talks about horror. I love when he talks about not horror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you, but you know, it just when you say four-hour horror documentary, I get excited because I remember how much I love the Crystal Lake documentary. Yeah. How much I love the Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a lot like that. Oh, I love those yeah. Documentaries. So I think I think you'll really dig it because it it goes in depth. It's I mean, obviously, it's not going to be that in depth per movie, but the fact that they go through that many movies through ten year span is is pretty intense. And it's four hours. Um, and it's four hours. I, I had watched two hours like a few weeks beforehand and I just was like, well, it's fucking Halloween. I'm kind of like horror movied out. Let's yeah. watch a documentary about horror movies. What did you do for Halloween? It, I stayed late at work. I literally was at work until 730. Yeah, I think um, because I was I can't even remember what I was working on. I'm so fucking burned out. I was working on something and then I came home and we like the thing is my neighborhood in Chicago, like the Albany Park neighborhood, 
it's like kind of known for being a really cool Halloween hub. Yeah. Like I, and last year was really great because the weather was nice. And I remember we walked around and we looked and like there's kids everywhere and they're all dressed up. And then there's a couple houses that do like really cool uh, events. And there's one house that has like a like a Halloween rock band that plays. Ooh. And it's really fun. They play a lot of covers. But this is huge crowd and it's like it, they're all in costume and it's really elaborate and it's very cool. And I was kind of depressed because it still happened this year. <laughs> Wait, in the winter? Or yeah, like I mean, that's the thing the is I think it, everything was on a much smaller scale. Oh, like God, nothing was really as, guys. I know. Like nothing. And they put so much work into this. And so we walked around a little bit and there were some people out, but it wasn't really the same. And no. then I think we just went and drank a couple beers at the local pub and then uh, came home. Well, I was warned about the snowy Halloweens when I first moved here because I figured it was going to be, you know, just like the, the leaves, crunchy leaves. And, yeah. you know, you put on maybe a cardigan or something like that. And that's about, you know, that's how cold it will get in October here. Nope. The fi- finally, we got the snowy Halloween that I was warned about twelve years ago when I first moved here. But you here. still had a costume. I still had a costume. We uh, we we went as uh, my girlfriend. and I went as Marty and Jennifer from specifically from Back to the Future Two. Yeah, yeah. So you know, weren't you initially going to be Jerry Seinfeld? We wanted to be uh, Jerry Seinfeld in the lane, but when we went to go look for um, costumes at this vintage shop on Belmont. I found the exact uh, little vest that, um, that Jennifer, no, Jennifer wears. And then, uh, you know, no, you never fit into jeans at like a random vintage store. You never do. <laughs> but she found the exact type of pants that Jennifer wears in part two. And we're like, we got to do it. You gotta we have do to do it. this now. And nobody's going to know who I was going to be dressed up as if I was Jerry Seinfeld because I literally dress up as Jerry Seinfeld every day <laughs> anyway. So one year I know. went as Job from Arrested Development. Which I just and I just wore like a suit jacket or something. People were like, I was just lazy and I was just like, I'm Job from because I was really into the show at the time. Did you know that I used to dress up as Back to the Future all the time? Like I used to be George McFly all the time. I knew that you loved George McFly. I didn't know that he's my favorite character, uh, maybe in cinema history, but specifically Back to the Future Two, George McFly. No, No, I'm just joking. Back to the Future One, and my my ex fiance's mom made she actually like stitched together like the exact jacket that he oh wears wow that's it. pretty yeah cool. this was uh in college and i used to go as i went as george mcfly probably three halloweens in a row oh wow and i because i had this jacket and it was like perfect it's exactly what he wears did when you walk him, around with like chocolate milk or um uh no but i i would i like cut my hair so i was like shaved yeah. underneath and then i had long kind of well my thing is my hair curls naturally yeah. so i literally was using a straightener yeah and i do a really the only impression i can do is crispin glover it's the only impression i'm good at <laughs> and so i i used to do that but but then one year I always went as him. And then one year I got, cause we had this friend, friend named Fred in college who was really, really short, yeah. like really funny. And he was an actor really short. They're very tiny. And he's got a Michael J. Fox vibe. Like he just does. So he paired with you. He paired with me and he was perfect. And he like, dude, he nailed every single aspect. There's a photo. Maybe we should post it on our socials, yeah, honestly, sure. because it wasn't just, uh, Fred as Marty, my fiance at the time was uh was who's wait um why am I blanking on her name Caroline <laughs> Leah Thompson Leah Thompson yeah. she was Leah Thompson's character and she nailed it and my buddy Dave was Biff Lorraine and he so she was it. Lor- so your fiance was Lorraine 
Yes, and I was George. And George, and then, and then you actually had a Biff. Going we had a with Biff oh, who wow. was very good. Yeah, and then we had a Doc who was very good. Wow. And he do- I feel like the Doc is hard to it's hard to do. Doc's hard to pull off, but he did it. Tall. Yeah, and like we have we ha- all took a photo together, and we even like memorized some scenes from yeah. the movie. And so it was the scene when George is like hanging up laundry, and Marty's. That's trying my to, like, favorite scene in the entire yeah, movie. And that's we yeah. did that scene. And, dad, uh, dad, daddy o. Yeah, dad, dad, daddy o. Yeah. And um. And we used we did that scene like at a party and nobody was amused. Well, because it's it's a deep cut scene. <laughs> and, and what I what I love about that so much is that it's literally the the father becoming or the son becoming the father. I to love this. It. It's it's one of the most beautiful scenes. Uh, well, you and I are film. very much in agreement that that's like a perfect movie. I think it's a perfect movie. But Back to the Future to me, I mean, I know it's colored by nostalgia, but it will always be my favorite movie. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I've. It's funny because we are talking about The Shining today, and The yeah. Shining has started to become like my favorite film, just in the sense that I never stopped thinking about it. Yeah. But when I'm thinking of a film that from the beginning, from when I was little to now, that I still think is perfect, ten out of ten, Diamond, Back to the Future. Yeah, I, seriously, I, it's, just, it's great. And, yeah. and honestly, like, it's not hurt by it being a trilogy either, because it works really well as a standalone movie, but it also really works in the trilogy too. Like, I, I think it's one of the rare trilogies left that is pretty perfect I sure think, you know? sure so yeah i mean like it, that's like honestly the last time because the only thing i used to really go as for halloween was either a reservoir dog or uh which one yeah do you <laughs> have brown no, no i just wore a suit and, <laughs> and you'd be like well you just change your uh, character every time yeah i would just wear a suit <laughs> well last and, year i was mr blue um <laughs> well i just and, would wear like black and white i guess i was mr blonde is if anything like yeah i don't know is this like black and white suit uh, sunglasses, and then I would just smoke cigarettes the whole night. Oh, nice! And then uh, I don't think I've ever seen you smoke a cigarette before, though. Yeah, that was the that was in college. It was yeah. a long time ago. And then uh, and then, but once I think I moved to Chicago, I think I stopped doing Halloween. Yeah, you don't. I remember the first time I like I actually hung out with you on Halloween. Um, you were wearing you had a shirt that said Kelly Kapowski. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I just <laughs> I got into the habit because I don't like dressing up anymore because. Uh, well, I just started like getting shirts made that yeah. just had the name of a character yeah. I liked, and then so uh, Kelly Kapowski was one. I have a shirt that says Avon Barksdale yeah. uh, from The Wire because I love that character, and I was really <laughs> into The Wire. And that shirt was a huge hit. Yeah. And I went to a I went to a concert on Halloween, like in a tiny little. It was a little house party, and uh, this band that is now well it. It was called Born Gold, but they used to be called Gobble Gobble, and I liked them when they were called Gobble Gobble. They were playing in an attic in Logan Square, and this was maybe 2010, I think, and I went and I wore my Avon Barksdale shirt, and there was like five opening acts. Yeah. It's just one of those house shows. And like three of the acts called out my shirt. They were just like, shout to the dude in the Avon Barksdale shirt because everybody was into the wire. And then. you and you did blackface that year, right? No, no absolutely joking. not. I'm just joking. I was very respectful with my yeah. Avon Barksdale shirt. Well, that's what's great about the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have don't to do have the to other do the shit. And so then I did Kelly Kapowski another year. And one year I tried to get a hoodie made that said Zach Bagans from mm. Ghost Adventures. Okay. But I think he copyrighted his name because they called me and said, I used to just get a made at, and I should have done this. I used to get a made at a place called Strange Cargo in yeah. Chicago. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. They, it's, they, I think they, they moved up to Andersonville. Yeah, they're in Andersonville now. So they, listeners, if you're visiting <laughs> Chicago. And want to go to Strange Cargo? Don't it's go to Andersonville now. It used to be in Wrigleyville. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I actually tried to order it online because I want to get like a hoodie. Yeah, and 
that said Zach Bagans from Ghost Adventures, but they wouldn't do it because they said it violated a copyright. Weird. And so I think, but that doesn't surprise me. I love Zach Bagans, but he's definitely the kind of guy who would copyright his yeah. name. Yeah. And so uh, I was bummed. And I think that was the last time I really tried. But uh, I will I will say the other costume I did have this year was a repeat from last year because my girlfriend and I went as Jack and Wendy. Yeah. Which I guess we kind of really timed that one off. Uh, but <laughs> we probably should have gone this year as that. But anyway, um, fucking Christ. But um, hey, it was the the 30th anniversary for Back to Feature 2. So we're celebrating that there as well. There you go. Yeah. timely. But um, I did dress up. And this is so lame of me. But when I, I, I've been working at a coffee shop here down the street in uh, Wrigleyville. And, um, and uh, I, I, I dressed up as Jack Torrance. Because I wrote, I had to write the Doctor Sleep review for Consequence of Sound, like literally on Halloween, because yeah. we had seen it the night before. And I and I dressed as as Torrance uh, going to the coffee shop. And as I'm writing this review, uh, the guy that works there was just like, "You got some uh, shining vibes today." And I was just like, "I'm uh, writing the, the 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 review for this the sequel today." And of course, I had writer's block writing it, so I literally probably looked like Jack Torrance, like sitting there on the (laughs) at this large table because they have these huge, large wooden tables there. So it actually does look a lot like the Overlook. And I'm just like rubbing my temples, and I'm just and it dawned on me that I probably look like I was like some psycho in character, like actor that came to like a coffee shop on Halloween, like trying to be like like what what does this guy think he is? Jack Torrance. I thought that you were actually working at the coffee shop the way you framed that. Like you were serving coffee. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I just writing the review there. But I, it would be great if I was like, hey, I, I want to go as in character Jack Torrance serving coffee. I'm I'm totally method um, because, spoiler alert, uh, let's just say Jack Torrance serves some drinks in this movie. It's true. It's yeah. true. And I'm excited to talk about that. But, uh, well, thank you for indulging our Halloween conversation. I feel like it was necessary. Especially since we took a break on Halloween last week. It's true. We did. <laughs> uh, and so we needed it because yeah. there was a lot of, you know, exhaustion slash Halloween uh, tomfoolery going yeah. on. Yeah. So let's pivot into our talk about Dr. Sleep by heading into the Dairy Public Library. Mike Allen, if you see... Hey, excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. My Madeline, said I had to go. Said I had to get cleaned up. Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. Welcome to the Dairy Library. This is where we discuss, when we're talking about films, we talk about the history of the film, the Mm -hmm. background of the film. So let's make it clear what we're discussing. We're talking about Dr. Sleep. This is a 2019 movie that was uh, adapted from a 2013 novel. Yes. uh, By Stephen King. This is a sequel to The Shining. It was a direct sequel to The Shining. And did you know... Oh, I I have a fun little trivia that will probably get under your skin. Do you know who originally wrote the screenplay to this movie? (laughs) Akiva? Yeah. Hollywood hack Akiva Hollywood Goldsman? Hollywood hack Akiva Goldsman Can originally you imagine? Wrote, I know. Because here's the thing, and we'll talk more about this later, Yeah. but this movie has a magical child in it. And you know how much Akiva Goldsman loves oh, magical he children? Loves him. Yep. I can't even imagine how shitty his script was. No. And Flanagan rewrote it. You guys know me because I feel like I'm mostly pretty forgiving, except for last week when we talked about House Rock, because <laughs> yeah. I was really pissed off. Yeah. But I will say the only thing in the past that always made me mad was Akiva Goldsman Hollywood hack, which I'm pretty sure you coined the Hollywood hack. Akiva I'd Goldsman. like to think so, yeah. and even I though I know like your colleague adopted. has, to, you know, the colleague at the AV Club did take it and run away with it. Well, the thing is, I, I, even though he is my colleague now, I can't 
say whether or not he stole it from me. I don't. Th- I, I doubt it. But at the same time, it's, it is weird that the idea of calling. <laughs> look, it's not that hard to His call out. Did him. come after I coined it. Yeah. But the thing is, it's really not much of a stretch to it's call not. Akiva Goldsmith. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, <laughs> that that story's literally right there on the table. All you got to do is look at his filmography and go. Oh, a beautiful mind. That okay. is a man who yeah. has failed upwards. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like more than anybody. But anyways. But, but wouldn't you, you argue it's over? What? Ha- Akiva? Yeah. No, he's working on Star Trek. He's on Picard. Oh, is he really? Yeah. He's like in the writer's room. Oh, God. I that figured, dude is always going to be fine. I figured the fact that they didn't use his screenplay and that he doesn't seem to be involved with the new Dark Tower series that maybe they're kind of like, oh, hey, Akiva. No, hey. he is a producer on the new Dark Tower But he's series. not. I don't think he's writing. He's anything. not writing. Yeah. But he also was attached to the Firestarter reboot. Which we haven't heard anything of. Well, what I, last I heard was that Fatih Aiken, uh, the, I believe he's German, I could be wrong, uh, he was behind it, but then he just, and he just released that movie, The Golden Glove, mm-hmm. that Dan Caffrey, fellow Caffrey loser, loved, loved. And that is apparently an extremely brutal, disgusting movie about a serial killer. Yeah. And so, the fact that, and the thing is, the this guy's good, but like, that movie was a huge breakout for him. Yeah. So, I'm curious curious if he's still going to be involved because do they really want and Blumhouse is producing it do they really want like a brutal version of Firestarter like what what do they want and will he be able to adapt to that and so. would we be able to get it I mean my my thing is that we really haven't seen like a, a visceral Stephen King adaptation yeah. maybe I mean 1922 might be the only one I could yeah. think of in yeah. recent memory other than the mist well I don't know you know wait when you talk about visceral Gerald's like, game yeah, but I'm, I mean, you. I'm saying like really dark and brutal to the point where people are going to have problems watching it. I mean, because at uh, the end of by the end of watching Gerald's game, you you feel pretty good. But the I don't the, think you're going to have that the with glove, Golden Glove, dude. I know. Well, yeah, the degloving scene is awful. It's nasty. But at the same time, I don't know that. I mean, you still walk out of that movie like feeling good. Well, yeah, it's a Flanagan movie. Yeah, but I don't, the gore is yeah. intense. The gore is intense. That's pr- I would. Pr- and that's yeah, what the degloving like might it. be the the most like intense thing that we've seen since the mist. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, but I guess I'll just say that uh, I feel like, especially with the Kiva behind it. The Firestarter reboot, I bet when it was pitched and when it was originally out there, was like, we got to capitalize on Stranger Things. Yeah. You know, like, this is sitting right here. Yeah. We have to capitalize on it. All the kids are old, though. Well, no, I'm... <laughs> just get new, get <laughs> new kids. I'm saying it's like, well, we got to just replicate 11, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so in this in this thing, but that doesn't strike me as uh, something that this filmmaker would do. What, so. if, what if they cast Millie Bobby Brown as, as Charlie McGee? Could you imagine, like... That would be... The the cynicism of it would be so funny. Yeah. But that's, I don't know. I feel like we come up with jokes like that all the time. It's just like, what is the dumbest fucking thing? I would, I would actually be, I think I'd be okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> because it'd be so insane. Like, what if they cast Finn as her dad? <laughs> like her dad. Oh, <laughs> well, I guess David Harbour. Hey. But I also just think about like, we got to get Finn and, and Millie together again. And they're just like, well, we don't have a role for Finn. It's, I just make him the dad. We can dress him up. Well, here's the question. Then. If they did hire David Harbour as the father <laughs> yeah. for, for for Charlie and Charlie is being played by Millie Bobby Brown, what does that ruin more? The movie or Stranger Things? Oh, God. I would hate it. And mul- Well, I don't have a strong connection to the Firestarter movie. I don't either. Yeah. but So I guess it would ruin the series yeah. more. Because <laughs> you'd be like... David Arbor would actually be good casting for that. I know. Uh, but they need close. somebody... And the thing is, they need somebody younger for, for Charlie. But at the same time, like, I can't imagine... It's, I don't know. It's like finding good children 
actors within horror is really hard. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't even know if I want that. I'm so sick of like magical kids with know. powers. You know. Well, I I hate to say it. To, you know, I hate to break it to you, but we're talking about. A, I know. A movie magical. Well, kids did you powers. know that Doctor Sleep won the 2013 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel? I did not. And can I say this? I don't think people like Stephen King should win awards. <laughs> I, I agree. I think I think it's a little much because, like, isn't that award more for like you know breakout? I'm writers? just saying, like, once you reach a certain level of fame, yeah, you shouldn't win awards anymore. Like, you you're good. Yeah. Like, I feel like all awards should be for people who nobody knows who they are. Well, it's kind of like when I whenever the Oscars happen, and it just so happens that you know Spielberg has a prestige film and he's nominated for like best director. Yeah. Best, it's like no, he doesn't need. This Spielberg, you've had your time, but I almost feel like, like it's almost it's so desultory where it's like where you've got like Scorsese and it's like why hasn't he won an Oscar and then The Departed happens and they give him that, but it's like oh it's like a career Oscar because yeah. he didn't win for Goodfellas. But at this point, I'm just kind of like, like why? Like it, it just feels like checking a box, yeah. you know? And it drives me a little crazy. I'm like, I just feel like like giving awards to Stephen King. Do you think he gives a shit? Well, about he doesn't that? care. He just puts it in a fucking trunk somewhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, his life is so laissez-faire at this point that he's literally leasing out his fucking house for people to use it for a writer's retreat. Oh, can we talk about how he said that AV Club didn't say anything, doesn't say anything? That that is true. Okay, we are are still in. (laughs) Make no mistake. We are still in the public library. We are. But and this is important because the review, a Dowd's review for Dr. Sleep Got under his skin. It wasn't even that bad. It wasn't even that bad. It no. was a C plus. I mean, it's no B plus that uh, Mike Rothman over here at Consequence of Sound gave it, but you I know. will just say that it was truly bizarre uh, for one, probably the most famous author in the world. Yeah. To a, a, a guy that I've written about extensively, and the site has written about extensively. The site has long before I was there. Not to uh, mention the writer who wrote that review wrote one of the most like impassioned yes! like, pieces about Stephen King. Yeah, A. A. Dowd, who reviewed Doctor Sleep, like, like God, like a month and a half ago, two months ago. It was he, right after he, Chapter he, Two came out. Yeah, he wrote a whole essay about how it helped him like get through a really traumatic childhood experience, yeah. and like, and we also have given. Stephen King stuff like so many good reviews. The Institute, I've, the inst. I know, like I just reviewed the Institute. And I gave, I think I gave it a B minus, but it's like I still gave. It was still good review. It's like I, I wonder now if if King has now been roped into what the culture defines as like a good grade, where if it's not a B, B plus, A, it's a bad grade. But I think it's like if it's not a B plus. That's what I mean. Yeah. Then, like, not even B. Like, B okay, is so bad B now, plus too. now. Like, this is literally... Like, when you see C plus yeah. on the site, people think that's, like, an F now. Yes. Which is insane. Anything... Me. I feel like anything below B is an F. Fucking ridiculous. I know. And this is where we're at, and it's fucking awful. Like, literally, <sighs> criticism is suffering so much because people... Like, it's because... And, you know, this is the thing. It's like, it started... Well, it didn't start, but... It, Things went fucking haywire recently when, like, Ariana Grande, mm-hmm. Lana Del Rey, Lizzo. and Lizzo all fucking started going at critics. People who fucking live in one-room, like, yeah. you know, studios in whatever because they gave them – and all of them, none of them were negative reviews. No. They the were Lana Del Rey one reviews. is easily the most ridiculous one because yeah. it's like she literally was getting, I think she got one of the highest you know, rated album reviews yeah. on Pitchfork and like since maybe yeah. uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Yeah. And yet, 
you know, who was it? Ann Powers who wrote something about it. It was. And like it wasn't a, even that a bad. Storied writer. And she just went off, and, and it was just like. And, but she, I, I think she retracted that after at, at that point because it was. I think it even her matter. followers were kind of like. What it you? doesn't matter though because like no because the followers are all fucking sycophants. Mm. When you're that famous, they will fucking. They, they're attack dogs. Yeah. They will go after whoever daddy or mommy says. You know. Yeah. This is like such the problem with criticism, which is that. Like people cannot fucking take it no. at all, but it's not that they can't take it. It's not like they're getting unfair reviews or like F reviews for bullshit reasons. Yeah. They're getting like B reviews and they are attacking people who have like, like nine, like, like a hundredth percent of the people that actually, Oh yeah. Like, like in terms of followers. So Lizzo and, uh, and Lana and Ariana, Ariana Grande can just like sick people mm-hmm. on these critics and just drown them. And like, and Nicki Minaj did it too. I think yeah. like, or yeah, Nicki Minaj did it in like the worst way possible. Like, like a, like a year and a half ago or so where it's like, these people have such power that like, they're like, Oh, you didn't like one song in my album. Well, here's my hundreds of thousands of followers to call, tell you to kill yourself. You yeah. know what I mean? And this is what's so fucking nasty. And that's why it made me really sad. Sad, yeah. Uh, when King actually, and the thing is, because and this is piled up for me a little bit too, because literally within the last month, I've seen three of my heroes like personally attack my site. I've seen Tim Heidecker, who is to yep. me one of the funniest people on the planet, get pissed off at our C plus review of Mister America, which honestly was pretty like Warranted. not that you. Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the best. Like I love Tim's work, but yeah, that movie wasn't great. No. I didn't love it, and but also the review was fairly fair. It was yeah. a C plus. It wasn't that bad yeah tim six his followers on us uh and then who was it um what's his name norm fucking mcdonald yeah literally like my senpai like senpai please notice me like that was that's me with norm mcdonald and norm mcdonald got so fucking pissed at an article my colleague wrote that really wasn't even that bad no and then he sicked everyone on him and then now i've got stephen king saying av club will never ever give me a good grade ever which is it's bullshit we've given him so much good press and it's and it's crazy to think because this is that's one of the more petty reactions. Yes. Because first off, it's not true. I know. And for someone who espouses all these these um all this all these vitriolic reactions to someone like Trump, yeah. It's it's a very hypocritical. It's a bad look because you're you're literally uh, you're 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 espousing fake news. Yeah. Because it's if fake you want to talk about fake news, that is fake news. That is fake and, news. And and several followers of you know of of King were actually like posting the 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 you know the glowing reviews that the site has put on. That's there. nice to hear because whenever so, I see something like that, I don't read the reviews because I know it's just going to be a bunch of people going like, "If your club fucking sucks now, they hate you." It's you just know? you know it's it's funny because like when we've been doing the needful tweets episodes uh, for the past few months, and especially with uh, you know fellow loser Dan Fleeger, he's been on here. Fleeger has been you know quick to point out that like a lot of King's uh, tweets have been very Trumpian. Yeah. Um, in the sense of the kind of like how he you know acknowledges things. And, and jokes around look i'm not equating king to trump please note that <laughs> i know i bet but we're 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 skating on finest this is literally the detonation episode that we're going to be doing oh, i don't even feed. care but i mean honestly like the the thing that, that that's like gotten weird is that like when he goes and makes a tweet like that this is someone who's you know a liberal at heart who is someone who's always striving 
for us to to make the intelligent thought and the intelligent decision and to go out there and say like who doesn't give us the it's these blanket statements that are very trumpian and yeah. are very like emblematic of the 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 bad things in our times right yeah. now like you can't just ignore truths yeah for the sake of just an overarching statement but like, you also seems... can't like when you know that you have this kind of following exactly this sycophantic following yeah you can't like and I mean I understand it's, if it's something like really egregious, yeah. then I understand. Yeah. And it's great and like the cool thing about King is he's used his following to draw attention to like really good things yeah. in the past. But the idea of like piling on a site because they they gave like a C plus review to Doctor Sleep and it completely ignoring the fact that there's years of scholarship on this site that is very positive and very like like in a good way dissecting and like deep analysis of your work you yeah. know and it's like it's to me it's very short-sighted and it's very surprising and it just it shocks me like that these these billionaires these like super rich capitalist people i shouldn't say capitalist stephen king is very good and he's very charitable yeah yeah but it's just is. like it's like this I, it's more the capitalist society that i fucking hate but it's just like it's you know you've got you've got these people who are so rich so successful so powerful and they're still so mad. I know that people didn't absolutely bend over backwards to praise them. And, 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 and I'm just like, dude, you live in a blanket of praise. All exactly. you need to do is go to Twitter and post, "Do you like me?" And everyone will tell <laughs> you, you imagine they if you like tweeted you. That, but that's uh, that's what these people are asking yeah. you to do when they yeah. post stuff like that. But, it, but, that, but they go, "Oh, this person didn't like me. I need all of you to tell me you like me." Yeah. And it's just like. Dude, come on. I know. Like, I love Stephen King. We do this podcast. I adore Stephen yeah. King. I've committed untold We've committed hours three of my years life, of our life. Three years of my life to talking about basis. his works. Which is why it's just so bizarre to me that, like, oh, you got a C-plus review of Dr. Sleep. And the thing is, we're going to sit here and talk about why we liked it more yeah. than that. We, I would give it higher than a C-plus. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. it's, like, it's like, you know, the idea that you're going to come at us with that kind of shit, it's like, it blows my mind. It's also, again, going back to what you're thinking, like with like the Bram Stoker thing, it's like, he doesn't care. He shouldn't yeah. care. yeah. It's so funny that uh, that's what. Thank yeah. you for bringing it back because I was like, "How did I get on this?" And no, no, like, but that, but oh, that's right. But that, but it's true though because it's like mega I mean, famous people don't. Could you imagine? Rewards. All right, so in 2013 or 2014, when he gets that award, they probably like mailed him a letter. Hey, you won. <laughs> And he's probably like, hey, Tabby, hear that? Another award. And like, you know, maybe Throw Molly. The pile. Yeah, exactly. Like, he doesn't care. So, what does he fucking care about a C plus review for a film that, I mean, maybe that says more about his relationship to the film than we actually are led to, you know, believe? Yeah. I mean, because for me, I just take it that he's contractually obligated to tweet about something with every other films. Otherwise, why the fuck would he go and tweet about Dark Tower and be like, yeah. oh, you remember the face yeah. of his father to only six months later be like, eh, it's actually kind of was a shitty film. Yeah. In this sense, in that sense, it I'm almost, the only thing I can, will take away from that is that he does have a, a, a personal connection to yeah. this movie. Yeah. And that is something that I want to talk about big we time will. with this episode. Because well, I his think tweet that, about it is very telling. Yeah. And we talked about it in the last episode. Yeah. And I do think that, I think King cherishes this film more than a lot of his other films. And I, we can, I think so too. Yeah, we can talk more about that. So let's move on. Sorry for the rant, but I think it was necessary. And honestly, this is a Stephen King podcast and I'm going to talk about that shit. So deal with it. Um, let's move on. So basically, we, we were talking about Kiva Goldson was originally supposed to do this. <laughs> At the time, we hadn't even started this podcast yet when when that had happened because as early as 2014, they like Warner Brothers started developing this. Yeah, yeah. And so Warner Brothers obviously has a long you know history relationship with King. Yeah. Uh, 
they gave it to uh, Akiva Goldsman, Hollywood Hack. Which is bad. And they kind of toiled away until WB had their huge hit with it. And yep. they're like, wow, we were already developing this property. Go, 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 go. Yeah. Now, here's my question to you. Did you ever think this movie was ever really going to happen? Not with Akiva. Yeah. Well, if it did, I thought it would have been really shitty. Like, I, really embarrassingly bad. Because yeah. I think the book is solid. I like it more a lot. Like, preview of our next episode. I like it a lot more um, on my second read than mm-hmm. I did my first read. Yeah. But I think that I think that maybe they realized after Dark Tower that they didn't want Akiva attached to it. I'll say this. Pre-2016... No, pre-2017. Maybe 2016... I'll say 2016. Pre-2016, this movie wouldn't be made. Yeah. Because what I think changed in 2016 is that, A, you had a year going out with Force Awakens, which obviously kind of set the template for the next five years of this decade. Sorry, I'm in decade mode right now. Do it. But after 2015, Force Awakens creates this precedence to be like, go back to the source material. Go back to the original people that that, that created this stuff. Um, and then you have Stranger Things that hits out in that summer of 2016, which basically says there's a, n- there's money to be made, even more in nostalgia. There's money to be made there. Go there. You know, Be as reverent to the past as you can. 2017 happens. It takes that, you know, that, that sort of mentality that Stranger Things had and was able to kind of capitalize on mm-hmm. that. And I think what D- WB saw which was a great little dance here is that 2017 Gerald's game big, you know, obviously he's reverent to the source material. King really wants this to be reverent to the source material because he needs, if this is going to be made, yeah, it needs to be, you know, obviously you're always going to use the shiny IP, right? But I don't think you'd use it to, in a way that they do in this film. Right. If you didn't have the mentality that we are in making films and using IP post-2015. Yeah. I think the, the way that we're reverent to the past and leaning more towards, you know, the 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 original, uh, you know, original blueprints, the original templates and all. And all. I mean, you, you've seen it with Halloween 2018 and, you know, and you saw it with, as I mentioned, with The Force Awakens. There's this insistence to go back and be as reverent as possible. Yeah. And I think by them tapping Flanagan, they were able to do this two-pronged thing where they could be A, reverent to Stephen King, while also leaning on the Kubrick stuff, which in hindsight, I, I do wonder if they were ever going to do that pre-2015 if they I doubt with Akiva they were going to do that. Yeah. But the thing with Akiva, I don't know. I just feel like Akiva, he's such like, I feel like he would have demanded to make it a sequel to the movie and not yeah. the book, you know? Yeah. Whereas I don't think that he probably even had the capacity to consider that he could do both. But do you think you could even make a sequel to this movie without acknowledging the fact that you have to like kind of not reckon. rewrite history, but reckon with the, what I think wasn't that, in Kubrick's movie? Because I that's think what this that, movie does. I think that you, I feel like you need a specific mind to come into that yeah. way. I think that you need to be a real Stephen King fan exactly. to come in. Yeah. And while I don't, th- I don't act like, I don't think Akiva's like not a King fan. I don't think he's the, a King fan the same way that Flanagan is. No. Cause as I've said in the pod before, I was so impressed with Flanagan when I talked to him because he loves Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And that is so clear in the way that he talks about it. Like he goes way, way back with this material. And I I think it's a love that that comes not just from like, oh, I love his stories. whatever. I think it's a love that he he loves the way he writes stories and the way that he conceptualized characters. And I mean, you see it in all his other works, too. I mean, absolutely. The Honey of Hill House felt like the template for this or like the test or the 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 way for him to kind of 
exercise before actually doing the real marathon. And well, I imagine that King was very impressed when he probably spoke with Flanagan yeah. about Gerald's game. And he was probably like, this is the guy, like, this is the guy to do it. And I think that to me, I think, and especially I just think with the way that Dark Tower was going and Stephen King talked about how the problem with Dark Tower was he said it was like punching a, a rubber wall or something. He said something like that. It was like punching rubber where it's like, it's like, it's this, it listens to you, but it won't yield. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that that's how he talked about Dark Tower, where it sounds like from his comments in the aftermath of the film, because he obviously he supported it before it came out. But after it came out, you know, he talked a lot about how they weren't listening and they were they were determined to take it in a specific direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas you got Flanagan and I bet that people tried to talk him out of the ending of Gerald's game. Oh yeah. Uh, because you know, it, it doesn't work very well, but, and you got Steven on the phone and is like, they're trying to make me change it. Stephen. Yeah. Yeah. And I <laughs> bet, like, I no. bet Stephen King was very re- receptive to that, which yeah. he should be. I mean, that's the thing. Like when I talk to, and the thing is like, I still stand by the, even though I don't like the ending of Gerald's game, I, I stand by in a lot of ways, the way that Flanagan, uh, described it because you know when I talked to him about it he said it's not me to change the ending of his story then when I talked to Darabont recently because I interviewed Frank Darabont for the AV Club I, and he said he said you know it's you can change things with with King like it's you know when you're when you're adapting something you have to adhere to the format like mm-hmm. you have to adhere to the medium we're doing a film that's yeah. different than a book but he's like the finish line should be the same you yes. should end you should yeah. begin and end in the same place. You're telling that same story. And for King, I think Gerald's game, it needed to end in that place. That was the story he wanted to tell. So Flanagan was committed to that. Yeah. And he did that. And that's I think what I think is so fascinating about After Sleep, which we'll talk more about later, is that he really landed in the right place, mm-hmm. even as he changed things, mm-hmm. but because he knew that he needed to reckon with the movie, because he's a King fan and he understands that there is a complicated thing here, but also this movie is a slam dunk in a lot of ways because it is not just a king property it's ip it is because the shining is ip and if you draw upon the iconography which i guarantee there was never a compromise as to whether they're going to draw upon the iconography of the stand to help promote dr sleep because there is no dr sleep without stanley kubrick shining oh i I agree yeah Yeah. the movie would not be made i mean when we we discuss this I mean, I'm, you know, ad infinitum on this podcast yeah. at this point, but, and I, and I think that it's, it's one of these weird things that happen occasionally where it's just like, it's such a great, like testing cell yeah. for like, here we are in this era of IP, but also adapting. And it's like this Flanagan's almost kind of like, and I was, I was mulling this over while I was writing the review is that it seems almost unprecedented yeah. this situation that this movie is in right yeah. now because the crossroads and the weird like sort of puzzle that he had to fucking resolve here. I honestly couldn't think of any other situation that is that's yeah. similar to this. The context is immeasurable. It's insane. It is. And that's, I think this movie deserves more credit than it's getting. Oh, I agree for that. Yeah. I don't think the movie is perfect. No, no but no. I think that in terms of how it navigated a cultural sort of clusterfuck, is fascinating mm-hmm. and i think that you need to be as big of a king fan as flanagan is to do it i and i don't think this is hyperbole to say but i want to th- i think this might be some of the best mediation i've ever seen in pop culture in the last like 20 30 years 40. what do you mean when you say mediation? like him being the mediator between these two realms i mean yeah, you have like yeah. you know it's one thing to adapt source material and start from scratch but it's another thing to 
be dealing with competing sides. I mean, you're, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, that Seinfeld episode where uh, George is trying to park in the parking spot. Yeah. And then the other guy is trying to park in the other parking <laughs> spot. And he keeps asking for somebody to be like, well, wh- wh- what did you, who do you think's right here? I mean, I-, I was backing up. And then, you know, the whole joke of the episode is that one person starts agreeing and then another person disagrees. Flanagan just brilliantly in this film, and this is one of the reasons why my grade was higher, because I agree, there are some narrative flaws in this, and it does get a little clunky in this movie. But given how complicated and just the immeasurable complications of this film, the fact that he was able to to be allegiant to both of them equally is is pretty impressive. And especially... When you're dealing with someone like Kubrick, that's like the extra cherry on top where you're, you know, you're dealing with what we were saying before, the most renowned writer that we have currently right now. Yeah. But then also one of the most celebrated filmmakers who to my recollection has only been followed up with his, his work once, which was um, with 2010, the year we made contact, which was the sequel to 2001, um, which this film has a lot of interesting ties spiritually when you look at the production of it all. But I, I mean, it's it, the hurdles for this movie. I, I'd love to know just the stress alone that Flanagan had to deal with going mm-hmm. into this movie. And it's what's wild is that he the turnaround was amazing. Yeah, which kind of speaks to him as a filmmaker itself. I mean, yeah. like I, I can't. I, I would imagine people having like fucking heart palpitations working on this because mm-hmm. you're like, well, am I leaning too into too much into Kubrick? Or am I leaving behind too much to King? But there's a confidence to this movie that is phenomenal it just it speaks to his strengths there for sure i think so i mean he's got i think the thing about flanagan that always comes through is that he's got such a big heart in terms of his affection for material oh yeah but also his affection for his characters and that really bleeds through and i think the interesting thing it is interesting to measure this against the haunting of hill house yeah which was another like what sort i'm looking for uh uh well, Uncon- he's a- unconventional adaptation. It is, yeah. You know, where he basically took the novel and was like, okay, I'm going to tell a different story using these themes and these ideas and this framework. And that, and it worked out really well. I mean, it's such a, that was such a surprisingly interesting uh, riff on that material. Well, what I think he's really good at doing is is deconstructing. Yeah. And then reconstructing. Yeah. I mean, what what he does in this film that I really love is that, he takes what works the best in the Kubrick, you know, adaptation, what makes it work, what makes it iconic, what makes us remember it, and uses it to kind of elevate all the stuff that's in King's novel yeah. and in Dr. Sleep. Yeah. And by doing that, he kind of brilliantly made this bridge, yeah. you know, and I use brilliant like multiple times here, but I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Like that was one of my, my joys watching this movie was just... It, it doesn't feel tacky yeah. when it should have. Yeah. It doesn't feel like like easy. I mean, there's a part, there's a couple moments where I'm just like, all right, you're you're having a little fun in the play in sure. the sandbox. But even then, I feel he earns it. But the fact that he was able to just kind of really deconstruct Kubrick's film while also deconstructing both The Shining Book and um, Doctor Sleep, the novel, and just putting it all on the table and being like, all right, how do I take the narrative of Stephen King and fuel it? with the aesthetic that, of that that was in Kubrick's film and it, it's just it's it's really it's like watching like fucking Bobby Fischer uh playing chess or something <laughs> like that and just figuring it out himself I, I I don't know I just 
for me, that that was why I didn't even really talk about the film in my verdict for the review. I really just kind of just talked about Flanagan as a filmmaker because I'm like, fuck, I can't watch this movie without thinking like without getting excited about what he's going to do next at this point. Yeah, you know? I think that there's I think that when I watch when I read a lot of other reviews, I think we're going to approach it from a different perspective in some ways because we are in many ways as, you know, in love with King as we are with Kubrick. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people that were writing reviews of this are much more students of Kubrick than they are King. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there, I think a lot of the criticisms I've seen is that by summoning the spirit of Kubrick and by emulating some of what he was doing in The Shining, you're sort of showing your ass as not being as good as Kubrick, you know? Yeah. Like Flanagan's uh, as as sort of uh, an artist can't touch the mastery Mm-mm. of Kubrick's work. Which he doesn't really try. I right. mean, because honestly, exactly. if he was going to make another movie like Kubrick, most of this movie would have like, what, 30 lines of dialogue? Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue in the I mean, original I Shining. I mean, I think the, like, the thing is, and this speaks to the difference between the book The Shining mm-hmm. and the movie The Shining, is that Kubrick's work is fundamentally divorced from the way King writes. Oh, absolutely. And the way yeah. that King views sort of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, King's critique of the movie always is that Jack isn't like a real person. No. He's not, he's, you never see a descent into madness. He's always mad. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick clearly knew that going in and yeah. that was his intention. <laughs> and so there's that divorcing there. And I think that's the thing with, Flanagan is he's such an emotional sentimental filmmaker which he really is uh that he's much more so on King's side in terms of the way that he approaches characters uh emotions relationships things of that nature there's a much more sentimental streak here that I think will ultimately fundamentally divorce it from Kubrick's aesthetic which is why Dr. Sleep will never be as scary as The Shining no because there's too much heart there and I think that the scariest movies tend to you know uh, they tend to prioritize sort of the the gristle over the heart, you know, yeah. and the aesthetic and atmosphere for yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, because that's that's I mean, it's like watching a painting when you're looking at the the shining. Because I mean, so much of the attention to detail is in the foreground, you yeah, know, in the background, and, yeah. and and hardly. I mean, granted, well, that's not fair because obviously, I mean, look, he just he fucking drove <laughs> uh, Scottman Crothers. Um, <laughs> insane and Shelly, you know, Shelly Winters, drove them all insane. Shelly Duvall, insane, also. But um, so, I mean, I, obviously, there was some sort of mat- meticulous detail to, to literally every facet of that film. But he doesn't prioritize character, right? Over, say, you know, creating the gold room. Yeah, it's or, an aesthetic experience. Yeah, yeah. Whereas and, Flanagan's, I think, is much more of a, an emotional experience, which is mm-hmm. which is exactly what King intended. Yeah, and that's because Flanagan is such a big King fan that he wants to honor that. Yeah. So I think that as King fans, we can appreciate that. Whereas I think that you know, for a lot of film people, and I don't begrudge them this because I get it, but at the same time, it's like. Dude, if you're gonna start, if you're gonna start channeling Kubrick, and you're gonna use Kubrick iconography in your in the marketing of your film and within your film, you better fucking deliver. And I think that the aesthetic experience that maybe some critics were looking for wasn't here because it was much more focused on the characters and the emotions. Which, which I don't think is fair because look, we were never going to get another Shining. Like he was never going to make these, you know sprawling scenes that are you know what 20 seconds average length shots like that was never going to happen i mean but but he does you know contend with that aesthetic like there are several moments in this film where it is framed Uh uh-huh 
it is um, that, that there is patience in the same way that, that, that Kubrick exerted, but it's not throughout the whole film. Because if we had that full film, you wouldn't be able to do this story. Yeah. Like, you just wouldn't exactly. be able to do That's it. That's what I'm saying. And, is and they're, they're fundamentally yeah. incompatible. Yeah. The, the aesthetics. And that's yeah. okay. And, and that's why you kind of have to look at this movie almost like a mathematical thing. Like, I feel like I'm like that gif of yeah. like that woman with like the, 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 the numbers all over and everything. But that, that's kind of how I'm looking at it is because, you know, you can't choose sides here. Yeah. You have to see, you know, how it really works together. And when you can do that, I feel like you can appreciate the movie more. Like, yeah. don't come in here as a, as a Kubrick fan and don't come in here as a King fan. Although you, if you do come in as a King fan, you're probably going to appreciate it far more than if you come in as a Kubrick fan. <laughs> but just come in knowing that both of these entities can somehow exist. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of how I've, I, I looked at it in that respect. And Which the fact I that think he's able smart. to do that yeah. is a success of the movie for me. Agreed. Yeah. You know, shall so. we, uh, shall we move on to talk about the characters? Yeah, I think so. Let's move on to heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the losers club, asshole. <laughs> so you and McGregor, a Scott, a Scott. Was that, I, I, I a Scott, a Scott, a Scott, what is a, Sc- a Scottish accent? I'm signed on for train spotting. Um, <laughs> train spotting three. Train spotting three. Danny Boyle and I are going to Edinburgh. Um, um, I thought Ewan was good. I think he was good. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, here's the thing. And I wrote this in the review. Um, but you kind of have like carte blanche to do whatever you want with this character. Yeah. I mean, you have young, uh, you know, Danny Torrance, uh, by the way, cameo in the movie. Wait, who was he? He was at the baseball scene with the baseball boy. He's uh he's in the stands. Oh no shit. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, that 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 was cool. But you could really do anything with this. And in interviews, I think when Ewan McGregor was talking to Nerdist, he was like, you know, I was trying to imagine it being like Jack Nicholson's son, you know, growing up, which I guess I see, but at the same time, I just see it as a good protagonist that we're that we need to follow and we need to kind of believe in. Yeah. You know, and Ewan McGregor's great at that. I, I I mean when he wows me. It's mostly when he's playing like left of the dial characters. Yeah. You know, like when he's in Fargo. Yeah. Um, or he's obviously in Transpotting. This was just like, I needed a really good protagonist. He's like a meat and potatoes character. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is like how I feel of Dan in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Is I never really feel like he's like the kid from The Shining, but no, he's. No. But he's a fine protagonist. Yeah. But there's, I don't, you know, it, I guess I feel it more in the book than the movie. But but I do like that the movie, re, and I, I don't even mind the long run time because I feel like no, Flanagan does understand how important it is to really live for a while with drunk Ewan McGregor. Yes. You know, and also to show his young Danny mm-hmm. and to show us those scenes of him, you know, reckoning with the aftermath of the overlook in his home and like talking with uh Holleran and stuff like that. I felt everything in terms of like running time was in service to the gold room scene. Yeah. Because yeah. so much is left off the table in the yeah. gold room scene and it's telling that he never pans over it, if there's any if there's any scene that's very Kubrickian in this movie, it's that scene. Yeah. Because you're literally on Ewan the entire time when he's talking and confessing and having that monologue, uh, you know, to to his father Jack, who's yeah. now Lloyd. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that scene works unless you spend time all that time you get to have in the beginning of this movie, yeah. where you can kind of see the sins of the father that are on him, and and also 
by spending so much time with him in those early scenes, Flanagan has the opportunity to then kind of contend with the bits and pieces that we don't that we can only really glean from Kubrick's version. Yeah. Like we don't really get any motive per se from Jack. We just see Jack. You know, we see him as a surface level. We see we have to make inferences with it. Yeah. You know, whereas in this one you you're you're you know you're told as as opposed to shown. Yeah. Um and and even Danny, you don't really get to see the collateral damage or even really think about the collateral damage in the shining. Yeah. Um you do in the book, but you don't in the film. Yeah. And and because at that point, like you, you, Kubrick really uses Danny as just this kind of eye yeah. for us to look at the hotel and to to keep watching Jack. And so I think those earlier moments that you get to spend with Danny when he's struggling and going for you know when he comes into uh, New Hampshire, that gives Flanagan all the room to be able to patch things up and be able to say this still is the same world. Yeah, here's what you missed. You know, well, and King's so good, and he loves to write those scenes of like broken men entering a small town and yeah. realizing this is where I should be and yeah. in this rebuilding process and I like that he spends a lot of time there as well and I do feel like we we get enough of of Dan that he feels like a real person a real character and someone we can root for which mm-hmm. is I think the most you can ask you know yeah and so uh I really was hoping for more like uh hookups or you know um you hookups know, I wanted some more uh time with Dr. John ah I need help uh when you, you get know. Bruce Greenwood in there I know I mean you got to use him but, but no I uh I actually thought that was funny um because the thing is I actually preferred I like John I like John but it's like it is kind of silly. And one of my things about the book is like, I feel like King sort of uses these supporting characters too much. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. whereas I actually like the amount we see, even though I love Bruce Greenwood and I could watch him act all day. And man, he's old and he is such a hunk. He is. He's, he's such a, he's babe. a gorgeous man. And we well, saw it in, in Gerald's game. Too. Yeah. He's like shirtless the whole time. Yeah. And How like, much do you, th- I, 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 I guarantee Bruce Greenwood like worked out like, Oh God. Nonstop. Before he probably Gerald's works game. out all the time. I mean, that dude, <laughs> But yeah, hey man, it looks good on him. Yes, he yeah. he's a hunk. I always, so. I always think of him as a Kennedy because I think he plays one of the Kennedys in like Thirteen Days or something. Well, that's good casting. Yeah, that is yeah. pretty good casting. So anyway, but I, I like how I like how his roles reduced, honestly, in uh, in Doctor Sleep and. And I like that it's sort of, you know, they just kind of keep him or like he functions there as an ally to Dan when he's trying to overcome his alcoholism, which I yeah. think is important. Yeah. And they even cut down the role of Billy's character, which is played by uh, Cliff Curtis. Mm-hmm. Great actor. Great. Uh, one of those guys who you've seen in a million things was recently in Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, oh. Fast and Furious You're a big, uh, big Hobbs and Shaw fan? Uh, I'm more of a fast fan. More fast I liked fan. Hobbs and Shaw, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't what it could have been. Is Cliff Curtis part of the family now? He No, he was. Was, he's part of the Rock's family. Oh, he's part okay. Of, of uh, Hobbs's family. Do you think he'll be in Furious? What is it, nine or ten? I, I would welcome him if yeah. he joined. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but it's it's cool to see him. But and I like him in this world. But they also kind of reduced his role a little bit, which I think is good. There's a lot of streamlining going on, mm-hmm. and and it's funny that I say this because King actually re, uh, tweeted again. Um, after he criticized the AV club saying, oh, they, they gave, uh, they gave Gerald's game a B, but they, they said they streamlined my story. So thanks, I guess, you know, and it's like, he said something like that. Jesus. And I was like, 
but yeah, that's what a good adaptation yeah, does. Yeah, is it streamlines a long this isn't book a Netflix into a ninety-minute or two-hour yeah. movie? Yeah. That's what adaptation is. Yeah, and so I think that Flanagan does a remarkable job I, of streamlining yeah. King's story, and we we'll talk. I, I feel like we'll talk about that a little bit here, but we're going to talk more about it next week because. Um, we're going to be talking huge, literally about the book. Yeah, because yeah. there's huge things that Flanagan cuts from the book that are so smart to cut. Exactly. do not need them. No, his his filtration system, and, and this is literally taken from my review, but is on fire here. Yeah. Uh, because like one of the, the one of the problems I did have with Gerald's game that we discussed before is that I feel he put a little bit too much where I feel like if someone that wasn't so not beholden, but respectful of King reverential, uh, would have probably had a little more, um, uh, you know, probably would have cut more. Sure. Um, and and definitely like would have had a little, you know, sharper eye on it. But here, I, I I think he's trimming fat left and right. And, and and it makes the story better. I mean, it moves. It's got, it's a, it's a more muscular story. Whereas the, 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 the book, it takes, it takes a lot of time to really kind of figure out itself. The last, I mean, well, I'll say like, the last quarter of the book is so overstuffed. Yeah. It's like there is too much going on. Like in terms of. spend so much time, uh, you know, grieving 9-11. The, 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 <laughs> we'll the talk about that quarter. next week. But no, there's just so many characters and so much like uh, so much like mind fuckery going on i just i like the book don't get me wrong i'm not you know don't leave angry comments just yet it's just like uh it's just um i like flanagan's version because it really cuts the bullshit and it really gets to the heart of it in the end in the climax leading up to it we're left with danny or dan and abra Mm -hmm. that's who we have and it's like and i just feel like in the book there's so much sort of noise around that like especially building to the climax Mm -hmm. and well danny abra and rose you know and so to me i think that that's what i appreciate about flanagan's version is i feel like he cuts down on sort of the extra characters really gets to the heart of it um and he gets the essentials that you you need you don't need to go through all these you know you know hoops and ladders to just to what book really does yeah you know and so I, I appreciate it for for kind of getting it to to its a core you know figures because I think it's a little bit more impacting yeah you know because um, at the end this is you know the this is Danny's story it is you yeah. know as much as even more so in this film I would argue than in the book yeah um, because of what they have to you know deal with mm-hmm. you know with Kubrick's version you know because they have to build up Danny even more because whatever we don't get from Jack. In Kubrick's version, we have to kind of get it through Danny in this one, this, yeah. this film, because yeah. you know you're reading the book, you know Jack more because of the you know King puts everything about Jack in The Shining. We don't yeah. get that in Kubrick's, so he kind of just has to use Ewan McGregor's Danny as this you know this funnel to kind of bring in stuff that we didn't get from the original Shining novel. Um, so in that respect, I, I actually think it makes a better story. Yeah. Um, because so much of the the actual Doctor Sleep book is dedicated to Abra, and I don't feel a movie really is dedicated so much to her here. No. You know? Oh, well, I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, the book. I do feel like the book presents her as more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do definitely feel like it's Dan's story in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and Dan's story in the book, but I do think that Abra like is, 
interesting in some ways, but I find her more interesting in the book because I think that she just has more layers mm-hmm. and there's more, you can see more of the timid, uh, well, maybe not the timid. Well, the apprehension of like what she has in her abilities. But also it, just how young she is, yeah. you know? And I feel like in the movie, there's a little bit of sort of uh, quote unquote YA badassery. There you is. Know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, if Akiva was behind this, it would be infinitely worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is that sort of like inevitable sense of, you know, young, powerful child and Rose the Hat can't, doesn't stand a chance against her, you know? Well, let's, what do you think about Kylie Curran? I mean, I, I, I thought she, she was good. She was good. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard casting a kid. I think obviously Flanagan has a great track record. Yeah, he does. Based on all the kids that were, you know, cast in the Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Um, even Gerald's Game. I mean, yeah. Gerald's Game has, you know, kids that are cast in there as well. Um, you weren't a big fan of Before I Wake, though, right? Didn't love Before I Wake, but yeah. it did have a Jacob Tremblay. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar nominee. Well, nominee, yeah. yeah and he's yeah. in this, too. Yeah, he is. As the baseball um, boy. Baseball boy. Which yeah. is literally a gut-churning sequence Absolutely. In the book, when he dies. Was it, it is, harder yeah. because it was Jacob Tremblay? No. No? I don't give a shit <laughs> about Jacob Tremblay. <laughs> Not a huge fan of Room. I actually uh, haven't seen Room, and I haven't seen The Predator, so I don't so you have, really... You have no... You're not on the Tremblay train. I've seen him in Before I Wake, the, oh, Mike, yeah. the Mike Flanagan movie. Okay, and, so you don't really have, like, the A-list. No. I don't know mind. A-list Tremblay. Okay. And uh, I will... But, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying regardless, and I remember chatting with you about this after we saw the movie, but I actually really appreciate that the movie took pains to really show that they were torturing. Him. Oh, absolutely. I know that's fucked up yeah. and dark the way I say that, but I think it's necessary because the true knot, and we can start talking about the true knot a little bit mm-hmm. is that, cause I actually like them better in the movie oh, than I do in ditto. the book. Ditto. I just think in the book, they, maybe it's like, because we have to read their names all the time. Yes. In the book, I, I think that's a big part of it. Stupid names. The, they're ridiculous <laughs> names that would look even lame in like Marvel comics. Yeah, they're bad. Yeah. Like yeah. they're so bad. I was just reading and there's one like a greedy G. It's like, <laughs> greedy G. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a wrestler. Uh, it's like, what are you doing? And so I, I like in the movie more because they actually did some really good casting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you and I both agree that Rebecca Ferguson is excellent. I, I think she's the MVP of this. Movie. Yeah, I agree. Because Rose the Hat on paper is such an over-the-top king character. Yeah. Uh, I'm still not, you know, really big on her character in the book. Um, I, I think that she's uh, a little overwritten with kind of like the, you know, like the the old villain that has the hat. You yeah. know, the, the, you know the, the the famous villain with the, the rail, on the railroad tracks. Like, it's <laughs> the, the, the sort of self, like the, the lack of self-awareness that she has in the book is something that I love in the movie because I think Rebecca Ferguson absolutely realizes how fucking ridiculous this character could yeah. be. Yeah. And because she's, I think she plays it with, with just enough self-awareness where it doesn't become meta, but it becomes knowledgeable in the sense that like, yeah, we're doing some pretty spectacular stuff here, but I buy it. Yeah. And you know, well, yeah, the true not, it's like, there is just something really inherently silly about them. There like is. They, they yeah. travel around. Uh, there are a bunch of like kind of, you know, a lot of them are older and uh, unthreatening looking. And then also, you know, they live off, they thrive off steam that they breathe off yeah. of, like children they torture. And then they are all like extremely horny and they're fucking all the time. Mm-hmm. And well, the way it's written in the book is just yeah, so trash. It's very, like, it's very over the top and silly. Yeah, and then, King's absolutely leaning into his like 
you know, when he was freelancing in the 70s, early <laughs> 70s, and to, you know, all the men's magazines. And I think a lot of the, and then just the general, like, mind powers, you know, mm-hmm. there's just something kind of silly about all of it. Yeah. But, and I, I still like them in the book, you know, I don't hate the true not, I, I think they get more interesting as it goes on, but I think when you, when you cast someone like, and I hope I'm saying his name right, like Carol Struckyern. Yeah. From, uh, Carol Strickland. Yeah. From, uh, from Twin from Peaks. Twin Peaks. Uh, uh, Adam's Family Values. Yeah. Um, like, that dude is, is fascinating. Yeah. And, you cast him as grandpa flick and then suddenly that character like you know he's a great actor and then you also see him sick and and you his presence it gives it a lot of weight and he yeah. was also in gerald's game and mm-hmm. he, he gave that character a lot of because you know some people they're they're just when they're that tall and they they command that much presence and especially when he's older there's just something unique about him i you i haven't seen anyone like him before yeah you know and that to me it's like that guy who was that really tall guy who passed away unfortunately he was in big fish and yeah he was in devil's yeah. rejects well he was in house of a thousand corpses i can't remember his name but extremely tall uh dude and uh, you look at that guy and you're like nobody else looks like him and that's why he's mm-hmm. fascinating you know and that to me is is when you can get a presence like that on screen in a compelling way you know, that's the power of cinema in a lot of ways. And the power of cinema also is that you can show versus tell. Yeah. I mean, when King is literally outlining each one of these characters and he does what he does best, uh, which is he tends to write a lot. Yeah. You know, when you're writing to the level of detail about sort of fringe characters like the true not, especially in the world of this shining, it, it comes off as so... Um, it, it, it's garish yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't for me like on paper a lot of it doesn't work and it takes a lot more selling for me to kind of keep reading on and, and and trying to understand what king is trying to say there i mean because he he relishes the idea that you know these are slovenly people or try to live slovenly to you know you know wash away into into you know abscond into america well, because he wants to also do some sort of commentary on middle America as well in there. And there's a lot of that we'll talk about next week in the book stuff. But what you get out of the film is that you could just show these people living and you don't yeah. have to sit there and go, well, Grandpa Flick did all this and that. Yeah. You get to have like a really gorgeous, you know, uh, dialogue between Rebecca Ferguson and him when he's dying. And you know That's how old he is. And it's great. Yeah. And you get the little bits of mythology that actually kind of go back to the old king where he would just leave little bits of teases there and stuff. So for me, the true not actually did win me over just by able but just by being able to live with them a little bit and not having to kind of just hear about you know their uh, orgies, their orgies <laughs> that, that, are, that are so ridiculous <laughs> and over the top and we're gonna have so much pound cake in that fucking episode it's, i know it's unreal, but yeah i'd say that like i was really sold maybe not on the I think that it was, uh, you know, Flanagan really focused on the core group, which was, you know, yeah. Rebecca Ferguson's Rose the Hat, uh, Carol Strickland's, um, Grandpa Flick, Z- Zane McLarnham's Crow Daddy, who was I thought was excellent because that dude is just such a good actor, yeah. and he's so menacing. And then and they also, get their moments. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. It, it, it's treated very similar to. I saw a lot of Spielberg in this movie. I know we were talking about it before, but I, I saw a lot of Spielberg in this. And that Spielberg's what, what Spielberg did best in his earlier films is that. Each one of his characters, whether heroes or villains, they all had their moments that you kind of took away and you're like, oh, yeah, that was fucking great about, you know, that that made about them. I mean, E.T., the guy, even like the way that um, he, you know, the keys, the character keys, like even like the way he fucking walks and the way that he, you know, he flicks his keys. They're little things that you kind of take away with you and you have these like sort of like tokens for each character and, and it adds so much more to their, you know the way that they exist in this world, Flanagan really does that well here. And I think Crow Daddy is a perfect example because he doesn't, he, he doesn't give a ton, Yeah. but what you get from him 
is is just enough and by the time you actually he exits stage stage left yeah you really actually do feel for him because yeah. he 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 kind of puts goes full throttle with these characters he he knows how to give each one of these characters in this movie they're they're just the right moments for you to to feel something from yeah. them, whether you hate them or you love them or whatnot. Well, he's and, able to establish too that they do have love for each other, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think that that's something that King does well in, especially in the latter half. It takes him a while to sort of really earn those moments, mm-hmm. but you know that's really prevalent in the book too. Is that is that there is a vulnerability to the true knot, and especially in the sense that you know, them getting measles can mm-hmm. kill them. Yeah. Uh, Flanagan touches on that a little. He doesn't lean into it as much as King does. And, but if there's one thing I, I kind of love, and we'll talk about this more next week, but is that, you know, one of the things I've noticed as a running trend in a lot of King's later books is he likes to portray his, his villains as part of crumbling institutions. Yes. And I, and that to me is really fascinating. And I think that Flanagan captures that, you know, uh, to uh, he doesn't he doesn't lean into it too hard, but he does capture the fact that this is a dwindling group that is in danger, and that there is genuine love between them. Which is why, and the thing is, Flanagan's such a sentimental person that you worry that he'll he'll humanize them too much to mm-hmm. the point where it's like, well, why do we want to see them suffer? But then you know that's why Jacob Tremblay's Baseball Boy is so important because yeah. you have to see them torture a child yeah. to really understand why they're so fucking evil and why it's so important that literally right after that scene you get the the sort of um you know matchup yeah between abra and rose and yeah. rose is just like a puppet for yeah. her yeah. and because you realize like oh yeah she has some fucking major flaws also yeah and how the hell is she gonna rebound and like because that was what i was wondering the whole time i was like we just saw her flung around like it was nothing how the hell is she going to come back and go after Abra? And and it, it wasn't that I was like actually like rooting for her, but it was I was invested in it. Yeah. And you don't get that in a lot of villains in in, right. in a lot of movies these days. I mean, and I think that's one of the biggest problems with the MCU in general is that I never feel anything for the villains. Yeah. And I actually did feel something here, but he did scale back the sentimental mentality enough where I'm just I'm not like oh look how look at right. know, Carol Strickland's dead. Yeah, and you, you know. don't want to do that. No. But at the same time, I felt like the actors were great about never. Um, Never snaring when they didn't need to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's really smart. And yeah, so I, I, I definitely was a big fan of how they were presented in this. And I also thought that they handled the uh, Snakebite Andy pretty mm-hmm. well, too, who is like the woman that they convert early yeah. in the film. Uh, I felt like she almost gets a chance to shine a little bit more in the movie than she does in the book. And especially because once you see that conversion process, it it it, it really it serves as a really defining moment for the true non. It does for the in the book as well. But I feel like here we got a little bit more of a rounded story for for Andy a little bit I think well what I really love is when you can understand not only just character but the character's abilities and have fun with it yeah so like when she ultimately what she does with Billy here yeah is great, yeah. Like because because you're like, oh wow, look at the power that these fucking people can do. Yeah. Like you like you could get a sense that like Flanagan not only understood the story but like the world within the story, so that he was able to kind of play with it in ways that cinematically 
are far more like gripping and, well, he, and add more you know, riveting says moments. that they all have different powers like yeah. in the book, but that's not something I feel like he exploits very much. No, Where, no. Well, I think he, he does. It just doesn't resonate as, as hard. Once you see it, like in here, we get to see why Grandpa Flick is special, yeah. why Crow Daddy is special, why Rose is special, why Andy is special. We get to see those. And he doesn't flood us with that because there is, you know, this extended group. Mm-hmm. He really keeps it tight to that core. Like the problem with, I've noticed this in a lot of Latter-day King is that he kind of floods us with characters. Like sometimes like, especially in the Institute and with, and in Dr. Sleep, like there's two, and especially in Dr. Sleep, it's exhausting. There's too many names. Oh yeah. And they're all stupid names. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so like, which wasn't, which was never his problem. I mean, even going back to his second book with Salem's lot, I mean, there are a lot of people in that book, but they are all memorable. And I mean, and I, and I think it's interesting to see the parallels. I never really thought about this, but that idea of I feel like the true knot are is very similar to like you know um, Barlow and yeah. and you know um, well they're vampires well they are energy vampires but like whereas one are you know they're antique salesmen so they're a little highbrow and get to live <laughs> you know um, on a on a different level um, they are they, they they do kind of represent these the these sects of America that where they are you know obviously the foreigners. But there's something to be said with the parallels. Maybe we could talk about it more next week. Probably should. That I feel like he's making some sort of similar commentary with the true knot. Because you have these people that are, that are true blue Americans traveling you know, the country trying to enjoy and appreciate as these tourists. And yet they also seem like foreigners yeah. at the same time. I yeah. think there's like some weird commentary there. I'll, I'll try to sit on that more when we yeah, actually get into the it. fucking That's book or whatever. But yeah. Bottom line, I actually dug the true knot here, which was my biggest fear going into this movie because yeah. I was like, if you can't nail the true knot, this movie falls apart. Yeah. And just even seeing him that first shot with the child at the lake I was, gonna say, was that's, terrifying. That was a really smart first scene, which mm-hmm. isn't in the book, that scene, no. where this little girl in a campground kind of finds Rose. And then as she's talking to Rose and uh, she sees kind of the breath of the true knot uh, start to surround her in the yeah. forest. It's a really unnerving, when, eerie shot. And that's yeah. a perfect example of Flanagan using the aesthetics of Kubrick. Yeah. Because a lot of those shots of like the figure standing in the distance, yep. standing stoically, that's true blue Kubrick. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it also just, you know, you create these really striking figures. I mean, that's what I said, like, like casting a seven foot something dude as one of these people is something that is going to resonate in a yeah. movie like this. Like I almost wish that he had, he had, you know, chosen more uh, unconventional body types and things like that to help round out that, that sort of ensemble, because I feel like visually uh, it's good to have that because mm-hmm. it, it does create sort of an uncanny quality. Yeah. So, it's yeah. almost like uh, seeing the hitchhiking ghosts in the the haunted mansion. What? Because <laughs> they have ride? like one's tall, one's fat, one's you know <laughs> wide or whatever. I anyway, think it's, yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, let's talk about the, the the rounding out the cast of the familiar faces. Yeah, you know, um, Alex Esso uh, as Wendy Torrance. Oh yeah. Uh, we get uh, Henry Thomas as what they say. Funny, it's funny. They say the bartender. We should probably let's wait about him. You think so? Let's talk more about about him in a minute. Let's okay. talk first about Wendy. Okay, and let's talk about uh, Carl Lumbry. Carl Lumbry as uh, Dick Halloran. He was great. I thought he was excellent. Really, really good. Yeah. I mean, that dude's been around for years. Yeah. Uh, I know he was a big he was a big name on Alias back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, but man, just. 
per- perfection in casting. He, he has these. He he man he manages to nail these like little nuances yeah. that you know that uh, Scatman Crothers did. Yeah. Especially like he puts his tongue right under like right underneath his lip in a way that exactly Scatman Crothers does between yeah. you know between sentences. Yeah. Um, and especially when he's waiting for Danny to react. It's such a dead-on impersonation that I I wish I could like talk to these cast members and one and ask them like how many times they watch all these scenes over and over again. What was the process to like mirroring uh, right. you know these cast members? Because um, I yeah I thought out of out of the the group there that are from obviously taken from you know Kubrick's vision. Yeah, I think he might be the the you know the best of the bunch. He was awesome, but I also know. thought Alex Esso was great. She really. I mean, I think Shelley Duvall is such a singular presence. You're never going to yeah. find somebody who can really be like Shelley Duvall. But I mean, you know, in the small small bits that she had, I thought it totally yeah. worked. Yeah, because I was surprised we didn't get a lot from her, though. I think that's okay. I mean, I feel like we probably don't want too much because otherwise we're going to be thinking too much about the fact True. that it's not Shelley Duvall. I, I, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get the bees uh, or the bugs uh, thing with the mom. Oh. Because we, I think that, that, that haunt, I think that image is incredibly haunting. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and just the, like, I thought they could have done a little bit more with the, bu- the bugs in hindsight, but um that scene where he talks about how like her whole face was covered and he couldn't even see her by it's the terrifying. end is so fucking scary. Yeah. I think about that one a lot just reading this book. Cause I actually don't find the book that scary as you know, either. So I don't blame the movie not being that scary. But, right. You know, right. Right. Um, but, I, have, I have one question that's, yeah. that's about the bartender. Was there ever any, uh, wonder that Henry Thomas was going to play him? I had no clue that was Henry yeah. Thomas even while watching. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I love Henry Thomas, and yeah. I know that. I know that. Um, he's dear. He's Flanagan dear and dear loves to, to work with him. To Flanagan, yeah, because he was in Ouija Origin of Evil, House, House on Haunted Hill, and uh, now this, and it's like, and he's and great. he's also in Gerald's Game because he's the he father in Gerald's game. game. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah. about so that. So he's he gets the key moments. Yeah, man, in he these gets things. Some good roles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's you know I was talking to a friend of mine today, and. She was like, why did they show him? Mm-hmm. Like, why wasn't like she's like the scene needed to be there. You know, the scene between Danny and Jack at the bar is the best thing that Flanagan did here that isn't in the book. You know, it's it's the moment that really needed to be there. And when King talks about Flanagan being a good storyteller as well as a good adapter, mm-hmm. I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah. You know? And it's that scene, which I am a big fan of and I'm glad it's there. But, I agree. But I do wonder, it's like, did we need to see his face? I don't know if we need to see his face. I will say what I did need to see. We got a lot of de-aging technology right now. <laughs> I, 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 not to promote the you know Netflix too much, but The Irishman is hitting uh, your feed on uh, November 24th, <laughs> starring Al Pacino- Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. And look, let's just say they look a little younger in this movie. <laughs> Why couldn't Warner Brothers just be like, look, Jack, come on down to Atlanta. He's so much money. Just we'll, we'll get you a game to an Atlanta Hawks game. I think the Lakers <laughs> are in town. Just come on in and, 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 and just de-age Nicholson for that one scene. It's so, it's and I, I've said this word before, it's so stoic and so frozen there that you could have easily de-aged him and it would have worked perfectly yeah um and and i and i I doubt flanagan even thought about it because obviously he recast everyone else so it wouldn't make sense but i i just think it's so hard to torrance especially 
and Nicholson's performance as him is so iconic. I mean, it's literally the poster you mostly see when you buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, other than the new 4K restoration, which is art now. Um, but it's just it's one of the most iconic performances of all time. So it's really hard to not have Nicholson in there. I will say Henry Thomas does an amazing job. He's great. He does yeah. an amazing job in that. But, but it's man, a losing battle. Fuck, I wanted that de-aging thing. Yeah, right? it's even, a losing even if they battle. brought back real Jack. Yeah. Just just as old Jack. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I mean, what, what it looks been, like now. It would have been interesting. I just, it was a bold choice that I'm not sure that I just, I, I, the thing is, I was saying to my friend today when she was, she was saying she really pulled her out was, you know, seeing uh, Jack, but not, you know, Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, I think I just forgave it because I was so happy the scene was there. Me too. Because I thought the yeah. scene was was moving and interesting and smart and well-written. Because uh, it was the unseen elephant in the room. Yeah. We know that Jack Torrance is the culprit for all of this, you know, collateral damage here. And yet we don't see him. Yeah. We don't even hear him. Well, because, you know, in the book, the the hotel's blown up. And yeah. we don't get that scene. And, and the gift that I think Flanagan was given by choosing to reconcile the film and the book was that the hotel still stood, which meant that Jack was still existed within the hotel. Exactly. And yeah. I think by by engaging with that directly, that must have been, like, exciting. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just think about, like, imagine being the person who gets to write, like, Danny as an adult meeting Jack and being not like like Stephen King gives you permission to write that yeah. scene you know that's so exciting it's it's the type of scene that I can't wait is on YouTube wait till it hits YouTube yeah so I could revisit it again and again I was thinking about that today before recording this episode being like God I want to rewatch that fucking scene yeah. again so bad and I love Henry Thomas and I think it's it's interesting but I do I think that where I ultimately land is I wish we kind of just saw the character in profile I don't mm-hmm. know if I needed to see his face yeah. you know I don't think it helped by seeing his face I will say the profile itself you know before he talks. It's pretty goddamn convincing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe if we just had that, just keep it in shadow, you know. Yeah. Like I, I, th- or maybe even just CGI that shit. And just I know. Make, like make Henry Thomas look like Jack Nicholson. You could do it. You could like- have easily done it. <laughs> I mean, they they're doing it. I mean, they did it literally this past weekend with Dark Fate with Eddie Furlong, who doesn't look anything like Eddie Furlong anymore. Um, they used him to kind of mirror over a new kid. Oh, did you and, see it? Yeah, I saw it. It's pretty good. Oh, nice. I didn't. I, I was surprised. I was Sound genuinely surprised. Said. I know. Well, it's I was I was legit surprised by that movie, but I, I was also just really won over by the de aging thing. So just thinking about that, only days after seeing Doctor Sleep, I was like, Nicholson, I know you're retired, but fuck, man, like he's not retired. He's, he's technically retired. He'll pop up again. His last movie was that movie with Paul Rudd. Which one? Uh, some Nancy. I think it was the Nancy Myers movie, some maybe. Like- dinner for schmucks thing type of thing yeah it's <laughs> reese witherspoon's in it it's the type of movie that jack nicholson does not need to end his career that's on. some real gene hackman welcome to moose Portion. i know <laughs> well this could have been his chance to come back as jack and settle the it deal been amazing it would have been yeah. amazing yeah yeah well either way we didn't get it um i i don't know i I, I think um, I'm personally okay with everything that we saw as flashbacks yeah. and stuff. I think it doesn't. It didn't I'm, pull me out. Yeah, so much. I think ultimately I'm okay with it because I think it, it was all it, it was doing the right thing. Yeah, I think ultimately, uh, but you know, I think it's one of those instances where it's imperfect, but ultimately, I like the effort and I like the intention more than I dislike yeah. seeing him. Agreed. You know what I mean? Agreed. I think that's something that I can divorce myself with because, you know, for me, I really don't, I see this as a reconciliation of The Shining and 
uh, Stephen King. And so I don't see it as a direct sequel to The Shining. So I'm not expecting it as... I'm not expecting it as, like, to mirror The Shining in tone or or aesthetic. And so, yeah. It's like... So I think that I can accept this as Flanagan's movie. Yeah. And in the world of Flanagan, I can buy this scene. Well, and that's the, you know, the third process that he had to do. Yeah. You know, he had to make it his own. Yeah, which is hard, man. <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, the juggling act here is wild. Somebody actually brought a really good argument... And this is, I wouldn't say it's really more of an argument. It's kind of like, almost like Reddit fan theories. But they're saying that like, well, the original one is Jack Torrance, obviously. But because this is in the mind of an adult, Danny, perception's different. Who's saying this? <laughs> Somebody was online was saying it was Tell a, a way up. to explain it. And I was like, oh, okay, I could see that. Look, but, just accept it. It's just not Jack. Yeah, it's yeah. not Jack it's just, We don't need to come up with no. bullshit reasons why it isn't. Would, would, he, would, he, would you have bought it more if they didn't even do the de-aging process and they literally just rolled Jack Nicholson behind the counter? <laughs> In a Lakers jersey? In a Lakers jersey. <laughs> and he's wearing glasses. Sunglasses. You know, let's just say uh, things have changed around here. Um, here's my last question to, with regard. <laughs> And he's, and he's, but, but like, and maybe he's wearing like a crew jacket from Wolf. <laughs> I like this jacket. It I've, still uh, fits. It still fits. <laughs> and Michelle signed the back. Um, I can make a mint off this on eBay. Th- this is how uh, nerdy I was getting watching Dar- Dr. Sleep. I wondered if, um, <laughs> I still can't get that image out. If you, by the way, if you're listening to this and you know how, you have any Photoshop skills and you manage to take a photo of that scene in the movie, please Photoshop a, a new Jack into oh it. God, I'm not trying to get you in trouble that. by taking photos of screens in movie theaters, but if you're there and you see that scene, just just get one for us. I would even Photoshop it. I want that in my background. Oh my um, God. I want that to be my phone skin. Um, my la- my my one question. My last question uh, detailed to the characters. When Danny's walking down the hallway in the Overlook and you see the, you know, you obviously see the black and white photos in there that which we see at the ending of The Shining. Do you think Flanagan went to the level of detail to reproduce the July 21st uh, or July, you know, July 4th, 1921 uh, uh, ball and had Henry Thomas as Jack <laughs> standing in the middle <laughs> just to go full Kubrick as a director? As much as I... No, as much as I would like to think that he would, I think that, uh, you know, one must one must draw a line yeah. and say no. And also, I remember somebody did ask uh, Flanagan about, like, so did you put your actors through the same shit that yeah. you know, Kubrick did? And then Kubrick Flanagan was just like, it was like, no, dude, they're actors. No. They're acting. Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying yeah. to replicate Kubrick and everything. I could see his wife, like, Casey would be like, my Flanagan, no, Mike. <laughs> Be nice. Be nice to. Be, be nice. nice to Ewan. Oh um, man, Ewan or Ewan? Ewan, right? I just say Ewan. Yeah, whatever. Be um, nice to me. Be nice to me. Wait, I can't do Scottish. What is Scottish? Oh, you better be nice to me. No, that doesn't sound anything like it. Um, shite. Ah, uh, shite. There's a bunch that, of shite. I, I just think it tra- it's like don't put that shite in your veins. The shite in your I'm veins. Just thinking of funny. Underworld. <laughs> I like Joy Division. <laughs> I'm not an actor. Oh, God. Anyway, um, do we want to talk about maybe what we didn't like in this movie? Yeah. All right. Well, Let's move uh, on. It's time to have some nightmares and dreamscapes. Ah! If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No. 
Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Welcome to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. <laughs> this is where we discuss nightmares and dreamscapes. Well, mostly just nightmares. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess this is basically for, our misery section, but yeah, we didn't want to call it misery, misery again. Yeah. I think for me, it's like what, when I think about what I didn't like, it it really, honestly, it's some of the, the hurdles that can't really be fixed from King's novel. Mm-hmm. I think that there are, I think that the plot, I think, I, th- I think my, let me summarize it. There's too much plot. There is a lot of plot. And that is the problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, that's what I think the, you know, you look at a lot of the great directors and a lot of times their plot light. Yeah. I mean, the shining Stanley Kubrick's the shining is mm-hmm. plot light. Yeah. There's very like plot is something you, that's a movie you could summarize in like a couple sentences. Yeah. There's so much going on in this, which there is in the book too. Yeah. And I think there's so many leaps that need to be made from you know, A to B to Z. And that's a lot of the book too. And the book is exhausting in that regard is that this movie to me, it sometimes feels like it's on rails. Mm -hmm. Like it's like Danny, especially seems like he's on rails. Like he needs to get from point A to point B. And there's like moments when we go from one plot line to the next with really no connective tissue. It's just like, okay, we got to move there. Yeah. And, and they don't, and honestly slim it down to even their meetup between yeah. opera and danny yep because they i mean king goes to great lengths to show that danny's not a pederast um <laughs> in the novel which we'll talk about next week but in this movie they just avoid all that and they're just like hey you want to go meet up cool which like, is probably smart yeah yeah i think that's much better it gets it going i i, I one thing i do like about this movie even more about the narrative it is clunky and I, I agree with that and that's one of the problems i do have with it because there's a section in the film in which i did want to check my phone and that's never a good thing. Yeah. Um, and especially a movie of this caliber where I've been waiting all year for it. And it's around the middle. And that's kind of the same way with the book. Because at the book, like, you're kind of just like, like, all right, we have the pieces. Let's get them together. Yeah. Come on. Go, go. Yeah. Um, but it only lasts for a short while. And, yeah. and I think there's only just, like, a brief stretch. And Because other than that, I think, like, Flanagan really has the momentum down. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he literally just did a Netflix miniseries. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know, I think I agree with you in a lot of ways. I think it, I think once you hit that moment where Abra and Danny need to start connecting, mm-hmm. like actually meet in the real world, yeah. there is a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done. Yeah. And it gets that way later too when it's basically like, okay, how do we get Abra and Danny to the overlook? Yeah. How do we get them there? And, you know, and how do we navigate all these different characters and this terrain that must be followed? Because we're in New Hampshire and then we're also in Colorado. Yep. And that shit, is where it gets exhausting. It does. Is where there's just a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of plot-driven kind of machinations. The moment when, you know, uh, when Danny finally meets, like, Abra's parents, there's just a lot of, like, like, that's, uh, that's like, a part that I read recently in the book where it's, like, you got to explain everything to the parents. I know. And I'm just like, why do we need to be reading this? I, I, this is what I've spent the whole book reading. I don't need to read a resuscitation of it. And there's moments like that in the movie too, where it's like, there's so many different dots that you need to connect. Although at the same time, as much as I say this, there's still a lot of streamlining that happened. There is. I mean, yeah. there's this whole section in the book where like uh, Danny and Avra basically like switch minds and mm-hmm. one is talking through the other. And it is so confusing on mm-hmm. the page. I mean, it's 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 easy to understand in sort of a broad sense, but when you're reading it, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't slip off the tongue, you know? Yeah. It's still very bizarre, and it goes on way too long. I, I think, honestly, the, the book or the story itself 
was kind of always meant to be a movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, because it's, it's very visual driven. It's very cinematic. It yeah. Is, yeah, it's very cinematic. And even just the way that the characters are supposed to interact, it's, it's, it's set up in a sense that you are building towards this sort of climactic, you know, you know, climactic battle of sorts. And that, you know, on paper that never really works as well. And I I actually think the the existence of the Overlook services the finale even more so. Yeah. Because you actually have a sense of place because in the book, I mean, clearly it's burned down. Yeah, it's burned down. It's just like scorched earth area where it's like, yeah, you're in the area. But like, it's such a, l- a less interesting thing to visualize Agreed. that I can see that even King probably himself was like, oh, why do we have to burn down the fucking yeah, hotel? And see along these <clears> same <throat> lines, it, I'm glad you brought that up. It's like along the lines of nightmares and dreamscapes here. I, I think one of the things I struggled with was I loved seeing the hotel again. I did too. I loved being there again. That was awesome. But I have to say, I struggled a little bit with like, all of the the spirits and the visions from Kubrick's movie manifesting again here, yes, as sort of like CGI uh, apparitions, like the twins, yeah, the great party guy, um, and then a few of the others thing people that and like I think the dog man, I can't remember if we saw him specifically, but it's like I I don't really love that because those characters sort of exist so iconically mm-hmm. within the original Shining, yeah, that I almost wish they hadn't been immortalized here well, and, that, and turned into kind of avatars of the of the overlook exactly and, and honestly it's the same reason why in ready player one when they recreate the overlook there it starts to falter when they get to the actual bathroom in 237 yeah because look it's one thing to take aesthetic and use it you know to your advantage and as flanagan does here but when you're actually taking the figures that make the film scary yeah you're really kind of jeopardizing things yeah. because they exist solely in those moments. Yep. And when you take them out of those moments, they become characters. Man. And especially when they're not characters, yeah. they're that's they, a they're great really, way to they, put they're, it, yeah. they're they're basically facets. I know what you, you mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like they exist so singularly yeah. within Kubrick's version. And when you take the twins and you say, "Oh no!" Like here they are again, and they are part of this fabric of this world, and they are. Uh, no longer these, you know, singular creations who exist at the end of this hallway. They're sort of like vengeful spirits that have an agenda yeah. within. Like they want to eat your steam, mm-hmm. you know, like they are part of this. And that to me is like, I don't want to assign them no. a goal or uh, a task. You know, oh. I don't need to vision them wanting to, you know, consume someone no. like to eat the steam or whatever. They work like, better as tapestries. Yeah. Or like, you know, like the great party guy, like, like we kind of it's kind of confirmed that he's Horace Derwent, you know, uh, which I think is something people always said in the original Shining. Yeah, but it's yeah. Uh, but it's not confirmed. But I think that it's interesting to me. Like you know, it's less interesting to me when you take that character and he's still holding the glass, you know, like in this vision. Because you need Dr. that. Sleep. Because of course, if without it, you won't know who it is. Yeah, because it's the iconography. Yeah. But when you take the iconography and you try to reframe it or expand upon it or place it in a different context, it just doesn't resonate no. as hard. So I kind of hated a little bit. Well, I didn't hate it. I, did, I didn't love seeing all of the characters from Kubrick Shining manifest as different versions of themselves here. Especially when they're the all hotel because well, the hotel is a static thing, yeah exactly you know? yeah. yeah well and especially when they're all trying to like you know he uses them to their advantage he unlocks them out of the box and they all come together 
it kind of reminded me of like <laughs> like Monster Squad or um, <laughs> or like even like the the when you go drive through Orlando and there are a bunch of posters for all the different theme park rides, but then you get to the one poster that's strictly for Universal Studios and they have like or they used to because now they don't have these rides anymore, but they'd have like Jaws next to the DeLorean next to King Kong next yeah. to like and they'd be all bundled together like the gang's here come and go join them. That's what it felt like when you see all of them you know assembling on the stairway. And it wasn't used to scary effect. It was all used to the the sort of oh, you got yeah. her, and like yeah. that. No, yeah. you don't need that. Like, yeah. and, and so I don't know. I mean, that I mean was it's clever I, narratively, yeah. but I don't know. That was a moment where I felt like it did a disservice to Kubrick's Shining. Yeah, which I, for the most part, don't feel. Yeah. Uh, I think in those moments, though, I, I'm like, leave those with Kubrick. Yeah. You know, as we say in our uh, the text threads, that you went too far. You went too far, Billy, to Crystal. Billy Crystal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's, I mean, other than that, I don't, I don't really have too many other. You know, yeah, that's that's. I think those are pretty big ones. Yeah, but I, I think for the most part, though, those are the ones that I had, and uh, and for the most part, I there was not a lot I like actively disliked yeah. here. Yeah. Were there things that scared you though? Things that scared me. I think we could talk about those. Let's move into a little place we call the cemetery. Uh, What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. So, what scared me? It scared me in Kubrick's version, and here's the thing. If there's one thing, I just spent the whole time saying don't bring back the characters from Kubrick's version, but I actually thought the one thing that did really land well here was the uh, was the woman in the tub. Yeah. I think that-, that Which scene, was, though? Uh, like well, early on? Early in the very yeah. the beginning, and then even in the end when Abra sort of took care of her, mm-hmm. uh, those moments really worked for me. Well, because there's just still something so jarring seeing- coming behind that curtain yeah. yeah and he does that really well it's that he uses the curtain and the and the yeah. bath and that whole kind of you know that context is mm-hmm. what we know her yeah. as and i think that really works and it works that way in the book too and uh i think it's really smart and um i did you think the true knot with the baseball boy was that scary or was that more of just it like, was disturbing it was disturbing yeah, yeah i think it was effective i mean and i think that it was the right i think he took it to the right point i think that in the book we go even further yeah but you can do that in the book and i think it really works in the book but i think watching when you're dealing with you know a 10 year old kid getting tortured you don't want to it's just in bad taste to sit with that for too long but you need it in the movie and so for me i thought that it was handled well i thought that he used some visual i mean you know the thing about flanagan is he's such a great he's such a great visual filmmaker and that he really knows how to use uh like he splashes the blood on the kid's face right that's what he all he needed to do was splash some butter on his face and then show him screaming and Mm -hmm. it's like because it it elevates it because first we see him screaming without blood in his face and then you put blood on his face and you know things have escalated and that's all you need to do and it works well it worked for texas chainsaw massacre and you know with toby hooper i mean you don't see anything in that exactly you just you're inferred yeah i think he does that and that goes back to what he was saying even before this movie came out where he was like there's not gonna be any jump scares yep. and, and we're not wasn't. gonna be leaning into like the modern horror tropes like this is a very classical style like yeah. you know horror film or thriller um even though i'd probably call it more of like a fantastical adventure than yeah it's than like anything. a it's like a fantasy horror yeah, yeah. It was fantasy horror i think yeah. that's good which is honestly what the hunting of hell house was, yeah. really was yeah um 
oddly enough, I don't think anything in this movie is nearly as terrifying as the one sequence in Hunting of Hill House with the tall man going oh, up and down love the, it. The, the things, which is so surprising to me because I felt you're in the Overlook. Try to do. I I, I wanted to see something new. Yeah, like a new a new spirit. And, and yeah. I guess that we're kind of I'm going to leaning back a little bit towards the Nightmares Dreamscapes, but I was anticipating something to be added that you could have added to the lore because he earned it. I mean, if you watch Haunting of Hill House, there's so many ghosts in there and there's so many creepy things in the background, and he does so many things with peripheral horror, which is very you know part and parcel what Kubrick does with The Shining. That I thought he'd add more to it, but I I, I am actually like it's hard for me to think of like what actually like like scared me because it, while I do think The Shining is still the one of the greatest horror films of all time and one of the scariest films of all time I've 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 leaned so much into the lore and it's become so memed and it's become I've been so ingratiated with the film now that it's almost like comforting to revisit like I actually almost see it as like comfort food to me like, yeah. I like being in that world I like being with the Overlook so that what used to be scary to me really isn't that terrifying to me even though i can recognize that it is scary yeah so when you're going back to that with dr sleep i struggled personally like actually finding anything that was scary for me like i i, I i'm like really trying to think because like even some of the moments in the books that terrify me like when the 102 uh, year old french woman starts acknowledging that she's been visited by ghosts and danny's like well i didn't see any ghosts yeah. there's something really unnerving about yeah. that and you don't really get that too much in here because any moments that are like that in this movie are more sentimental. Um, yeah, I agree. I think the book is definitely scarier yeah. uh, than the movie. But yeah, like I said, I think the um, I think the I I think more moments unnerve me yeah. than really scare me. I think the opening scene with the little girl by yeah. the water. I think that actually is a very frightening scene. The various yeah. sort of not members kind of gather around it was a, a nice unnerving mm. moment, and it really helped set up a kind of a an atmosphere of dread. Which I thought was good, not pervasive dread, but like you know, just enough of a of like of like I don't know. And it's always tough when you put children in peril, and I kind of appreciate that Flanagan has the guts to do that because he's such a sentimental filmmaker. But at the same time, he you know he he doesn't he doesn't fuck around. He doesn't toy around. Like that girl in the first scene is dead. They yeah. killed her, and they killed Jacob Tremblay's yep. character. Like they're dead. They were killed and tortured. Yeah. And I kind of like that he doesn't soften that. And I think that's important. And also, it's just so important to set the stakes of the thing. Yeah. So I think. Um. But you know, Flanagan sometimes I think leans a little bit too hard on a on a. a a character's eyes rolling back in their head or something mm-hmm. like he does that with Abra here, just like he did yeah. in the origin of evil. And I believe in Oculus as well. Uh, just that kind of general sense and, and hot Hill has too. just he does, like that yeah. whole sense of like the blank, the like all white eyes, yep. you know, and that sort of sense that you're in another place. He does that a lot. And it was effective at times. I, I actually, cause I'm, I am the staunch defender of Ouija origin of evil. I think you it's, are yeah. it's quite good. And, uh, but the, he's using some of the tricks from there. Like when Abra is sort of in, in that world sort of uh, com- with the file cabinets and combating Rose, he really uses that iconography and that, that imagery a little bit. And I'm just like, all right, I get it. I get yeah. it, buddy. You know, yeah. but, uh, I but did I- think that like, if you were to look at the original one as being like this source of terror, I almost paralleled to like the evil dead in the sense that this is far more adventurous yeah. and, and, and far more action oriented than, you know, the original one in the same way that evil dead two is to evil dead. And, and I'm fine with that. I, yeah. mean, I, I don't need, I didn't really need another terrifying horror movie. I just wanted to go back to this world and see the story either continue the way King intended. And yeah. I, and, you know, and that, and that's fine. Cause I, I mean, even the book, well, I do think the uh, like you were saying, like the book is definitely scarier than the movie. I don't even think King's really setting out to make a horrifying 
like yeah. story. I think yeah. he's honestly more interested in the actual human intera- human interactions and the character arcs that are going yeah. on there. Because honestly, if we're going to really talk about changes from the book without spoiling the book too much, there's a familial tie <laughs> that's nowhere <laughs> present in Thank this God. movie. Thank God. But even Ugh. then, when you look back and see what that familial twist, familial twist <laughs> that is definitely streamlining for sure. But it also proves that I think King was far more interested in character arcs than scaring. Yeah. So for me, maybe it wasn't supposed to be something scary, but yeah, which is fine. I think that there was enough tension and there was enough sort of, um, you know, like, I mean, I think that when they convert Andy, uh, into a member of the true not, I think that sequence works well. I think it works well when, uh, grandpa flick dies. I think that those are moments that like, you know, you remember how like some of the effects, like when grandpa flick was done, like, oh, I it's love like, that. it's not really scary, but it's no. like, it's unnerving. Yeah. You know? It's unnerving and it's really yeah. intriguing. Yeah. You know, there's like, it's, it's, it definitely keeps me on edge and it, and it, it fills me with a sort of sense of unease. And I think that that's fine. I mean, I don't need to be like, you know, there was nothing in here that actively truly terrified me, mm-hmm. but there was a plenty of stuff that kept me on edge, yeah. you know? And I think that that's like totally fine. Yeah. You know? So should we pivot to King's dominion? Let's do it. There's another world out there. I know there is. All right. Flanagan's a huge fan yeah. of Stephen King. We've established this. This film is a wash in Easter eggs. Uh, first one, obvious one. Jacob Tremblay's number is nineteen. Nineteen. So, they did um, not lean away from that. That is like telegraphed to the skies. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, at one point, DeCalorin says, "Cause a wheel." Yeah, that was really interesting because that was not, and that's not in the book at all. No, I no. thought that was a really interesting sort of like I don't know, almost brash kind of move, mm-hmm. you know, to have him just say that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely probably the most aggressive yeah. King's Dominion that I saw. Well, I mean, nineteen was everywhere, but it was like when Halloran said that, it was like to me, it's like, does that work for you? It like, works. Does for that me. phrase belong here? It. I. I think it does. If. If. If Flanagan. I'm I'm just gonna put this out there. I think Flanagan's trying to you know create his own cinematic universe. I don't know about that. <laughs> I feel like he if he was he would try to connect it more to uh, Gerald's game or something or Dark Tower know? 2000 uh, 2017 2017's Dark Tower. Wait, was that 20, that was 2016? Was uh, 2017? It's crazy. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, man, wild. I've lost all track of time. Yeah, I know, and we've been lost in the whole decade. So you know, <laughs> who knows. God. Um, but yeah, I, 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 there was there was a lot of other, you know, nods, obviously, to King. Um, well, there's the, the, bus. the bus that Danny takes is called like Tet uh, Travel or something, yeah. which, which is, is like. There's a kinda... lot of Dark Tower stuff in I here, know, which is kind which of is, interesting. Do you think Flanagan might... wants to do the Dark Tower? I well, mean... he's better get involved with Amazon. <laughs> yeah. What if he just said, uh, sorry, Netflix. Sorry, Glenn Bizarro. Going... This is my project. Yeah. God, I actually welcome that. But um, I would, too. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Jesus. Um what, what, what one of the things I really liked were just the, the the fun stuff that Flanagan got to do with using Kubrick's materials, like um, the one part where uh, uh, Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor, Danny goes and visits Doctor John. Yeah. His office is literally Ullman's office, which is amazing. Which I, I did love not it. Catch that. It was just so cool. Yeah. Um, and you could tell that either. He Flanagan or the set designers are all like, let's just go all out yeah. and just do it. And then there are also other cues. I mean, like when uh, Rose the Hat uh-huh. is walking up the stairs, oh. he, she's literally doing the same mannerisms that Jack, T- Jack Torrance does. Like the, 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 the flow that she has yep. is like, 
like that could be cheesy, but she like it's so smooth mm-hmm. and like effortless. Yeah, the way she does it. Yeah, but also she she has like a, a mocking kind of smirk on her face yeah. as she does it. Yeah, like there is this sense of like I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it to taunt you. Yeah, and that was to me was really effective. Yeah, I love that. Like that's the kind of shit that I usually would roll my eyes at, but I really like the way she did it. Yeah, me too. That's me why too. I think she's my MVP. I, she's d- definitely the MVP yeah. for this movie for sure. Um. Other than that, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are other ones. I, we only got to saw it one. We only saw it once. Yeah. It's been a week. Yeah. Um, those are the ones I caught. Yeah. Those are the ones I caught. I mean, for, for sure, like, I mean, you want to talk about real big nods. Look at the score, the Newton brothers. Yeah. Uh, which, spoiler alert, we are talking to on this episode. We didn't announce that in the, the intro, but let's just say that it was a, a shining secret. Um, that I'm, we're sure leaving on probably, here. I'm sure it's probably in the title. It of is the in the title of the episode. So, you know, whatever. But... Um, one of the reasons why I'm trying to hold off on the score discussion is because we're going to be talking about it so much with the actual composers, the Newton brothers, but there are so many nods to the original scrapbook of, of, uh, you know, scores or, yeah. you know, songs that Kubrick used in the original ones. Cause you know, obviously Kubrick never really used conventional uh, composers. He just kind of cobbled together a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. music like the best filmmakers, like Michael Mann does that sometimes. So, um, every time actually, but, um, <laughs> so not to go on a tangent, but, uh, I honestly did not pick up any other things. I didn't see, you know, it's not like Carrie White was walking around. Um, <laughs> Cujo. Cujo is no Cujo. <laughs> Uh, oh, there was, was there? I, I want to say there was mention to Derry or Castle Rock at one point when they're in um, New Hampshire, but I can't remember. Um, um, maybe. Yeah, I feel like I remember leaning over to you or something. No, sure. I, you, I, I, I just, I, I, I need to rewatch it. Maybe I'm sure are the listeners who yes. just fucking got out of the movie oh, theater are listening to this right now. They're like, "How did you not see that? You know, yeah, Randall Flag was there. Randall Flag was there. What if when Danny saw all the shining ghosts, like you know, walking towards him, yeah, Cooch was with him. Oh my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> what and and he actually acknowledged be like. Wait a second! You're that killer dog from Castle Rock. <laughs> Cooch, what are you doing here? Um, what if, what if, to really do a token nod to the original book, one of the hedge mage an- hedge maids animals came through the front door, <laughs> and it was shaped like Cooch. <laughs> I love these dumb. Bits. I know they're so dumb. Um, I, I, I will say I was kind of shocked that the hedge maze. Uh, yeah. or the, no, no, not the hedge maze but the hedge animals weren't incorporated yeah not incorporated because now you can do it and Kubrick actually tried to incorporate it in the original one so you could make the argument they they were technically there on the premises but yeah I, I don't know well, I, I was probably I mean was anybody keeping up with them you know no, no that's yeah. good that's a good point that wouldn't really make any sense yeah um oh on that note the I know we're supposed to suspend disbelief but I felt that generator room was pretty fucking clean. Yeah, for being removed for being for totally thirty abandoned. to forty years or something. Yeah, like that. there was a there was a few there was a few sort of I think things that you had to kind of suspend. Yeah. Like I, don't I think guess the, you, you can make. I don't think the hotel would have necessarily looked like it did because no. it still it wasn't covered in cobwebs or anything. No. You like know? Jack's like chair, the the yeah. the, type, the typewriter is still there. His chair was turned over. His glass was still next to it. The spirits are, are doing a lot of house cleaning. Yeah. Or, or else, you know, the forensics team in Sidewinder, Colorado really did a shit job. <laughs> well, the man disappeared. Uh, Shall we talk about overall thoughts? Let's do some overall thoughts. Let's do it. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> 
Okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. I'll start. I think for me, I just find this movie really impressive. Yeah. Impressive, and I think that. But almost, I I almost did I admire it as much as I like it, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that so basically you've got the book The Shining that Stephen King wrote, you've got the movie that Stanley Kubrick made that Stephen King famously didn't like, and then you've got Doctor Sleep, which sort of you know exists in this limbo. And we've joked a lot on the pod about like, is this a sequel to the sh- the movie The Shining or the book The Shining? And in the end, it was a sequel to both. Yeah, and. But it was a sequel to both that had roads that led to everything. And so we even get to end Dr. Sleep with the generator and the explosion of the hotel and an act of self-sacrifice, you know, that gets to happen. Um, that that to me is like such a beautiful way to honor the way that King believes the story should end the way that the shining should end, which is that it's a very humanistic story, Mm -hmm. but it also in so many ways pays tribute to Kubrick's vision and the ones that more people are probably familiar with in the book. And so in that sense that he was able to reconcile those things while also still faithfully telling the Dr. Sleep story in a way that was streamlined and entertaining and a way to really deal with this sort of like, you know, father, son grief, uh, the generational grief that exists within this world. Um, it's, it's, it's a triumph of vision in a lot of ways. And I think it speaks in many ways to, um, Flanagan's, uh, you know, reverence for King, mm-hmm. but also abilities as a storyteller and a filmmaker. That said, I would still say I enjoyed Gerald's Game more. Uh, for me, Gerald's Game, uh, I think by virtue of it being a smaller story, I think I just enjoyed it. I found it more effective as a Stephen King adaptation. I think that there's a bit of narrative clunkiness and, uh, and you know, a, and sort of an air of silliness that you can't really avoid when you're dealing with this story. Oh, absolutely. Because I yeah. think, I, but I do think that this is probably the best possible adaptation of mm-hmm. this book, yeah. which is to me not a bad book by any means, but not one of King's best and, and riddled with some of the, the sillier aspects of, of maybe his, his work. But I do think that this is a really solid adaptation that gets all the fundamentals right. Mm-hmm. And that to me, and not even the fundamentals, it, it expands upon that. It it does something culturally that is uh, that is so impressive and so clever. And uh, for that reason, I give it, out of five bright red Pennywise clown noses, I give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses. Well, I'll, uh, I'll echo everything you said. I'm going to go four and a half. Um, this is my favorite Stephen King adaptation of the Renaissance right now. Whoa. Even over it chapter one. Wow. Even over 1922. I I, I think given the hurdles that were here, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of, of, you know, when, when you can kind of surpass the chaos. Yeah. And he does. Yeah. I mean, he went against all odds. Yeah into this production and and this is just on paper the worst fucking gig you could possibly get but also the best gig because you get to play in the world of kubrick and you get to play in the world of king and fucking christ flanagan the pressure is, though the pressure must have been insane uh under the pressure of the war on drugs um <laughs> but under that pressure 
Flanagan still comes out as the best marriage counselor that I've seen in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's unreal. It. It's unreal. I, I I'm like the whole time I was watching this movie, the only the one thing that actually took me out more was just the the unbelievability of it all. Like I couldn't believe that this is actually happening, that he is actually doing this, that it was actually this good. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. This is the best adaptation that you'd ever get from this, and yeah. probably the only. I think out of all the King Source materials, I don't think anyone's ever going to come close to this ever again, or even come near it. I think this is literally the the overlook in Hollywood at this point, where everyone's like, eh, "Just leave this yeah. now." He did it. Yeah, we don't want to touch it. Um, and it's just it was just a marvel. It's just a, it's an incredible artifact now in Hollywood to see someone be able to to toe all those lines and do this delicate dance and and, and for that it's 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 a marvel in that respect and it was just so enjoyable to go back to this world and see these these bridges be made between the book and the film because i, I always love the, the the original film i i mean more than the book but i really do love the book too yeah and for him to be able to kind of you know bring them together in a way that didn't feel you know lame or um, you know, like well, it gluttonous. Feels, it feels like, pretty seamless. It's seamless. which is what I actually really like about yeah. it is that is that it, he arrives at that ending mm-hmm. in a way that that doesn't feel forced. No. and that's what I really liked yeah. about it. Because you know, you can you can sometimes see the the director or the writer sort of like straining to get to a certain yeah. place. And what I liked was that I didn't feel that here. No. It felt natural. Yeah, you know. So yeah. and and honestly, I I think it. I still think Flanagan struggles with landings um, because yeah. I, I personally... The ending goes on a little bit too long. I would have ended it maybe with uh, with the mother coming in and then you realize that Danny wasn't really there yeah. as opposed to like going into the final shot and also using the music. Yeah. Uh, also Midnight him the stars shine on. Yeah, that's no, a, that was a little bit much. That's too cheesy. Um, but... Hill House had a rough ending. Gerald's Game's got a rough ending. And then yeah. uh, Before I Wake is a rough ending. A lot of them. A lot of his stuff My does. My teacher in uh, grad school once told me that your ending is usually the page before your last yeah. one that yeah. you wrote. Yeah. And I feel like he can benefit from that sort of advice. But even that... It's it's so unreal. It's an anomaly, and yeah, I, I'm always going to respect those. So, well, he's gonna he's probably going to do more. I hope so. I, I want him to do it. more. I want they to... said that, like, I guess King said, "What's next? What do you think he's what they're talking about and what they're circling?" Well, the, so many properties are scooped up. I know you have to think about what's available. Do you think and... he's going to try to do like regulators and desperation or something like that? <sighs> If he did, I would love it. Because nobody's really circled those. Well, they made, yeah, they made Desperation a miniseries. It was like the miniseries, yeah, yeah. Years ago. But man, I am such a sucker for those books. Uh, like, I just love how mean they are, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I don't know if they're Flanagan material because no. there's, you know, he's he's a family guy. Like Maybe the girl who, lo- the girl who loved Tom Gordon. I mean, uh, I know they've been trying to get that well, one. Well, no, that's out. already been, oh, is it that's go- been scooped up. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I don't know who's directing it, but I know it's been, somebody's uh, optioned it. Uh, man, I don't even know. Because I'd have to, th- I'd have to sort through what's available. And well, I'm trying would- to think of classic King that hasn't really been touched. I don't think there's a lot. I mean, he might do like a short story or something, you know? Yeah. Who knows? It's like, I'm just trying, I'm like literally, and I don't, I don't know. I don't really want him to do a remake or something. No, I don't want him to do any remakes. I yeah. think, and I think this is the closest he'll get to doing some sort of quote unquote remake. I mean, I wish to God that he would, I really wish that he could work with David Lowry and do like the Salem's Lot or something like that. Ugh, and David, like, he, him he, and David Lowry and Salem's Lot would be incredible. Like but, Flanagan at the typewriter and But you know Lowry who we've got on Salem's Lot? Oh yeah, or uh, Boyd. Gary, Gary Doberman. The man himself. Could you imagine if Gary Doberman wrote the screenplay and directed this movie? I would jump off a bridge. <laughs> it would just be like the... Um, 
all the ghosts just like, ah! like you know, just like ah! oh, God. Anyway, but um, um yeah, I, I'm I've been thinking a lot about what will be his next project. I imagine we'll find out in the next month or two. Yeah, because he's got. I mean, he's busy with. The you know what I honestly fly. could see him doing? What? Nobody's made it in a movie. It's something like Rose Matter. Yeah, just because he's like. He is very wrapped. He's very interested in relationships, mm-hmm. uh, family, what that means. And I think, uh, I don't know, like, I think that he's less interested in sort of the iconic stories. Yeah. He's more interested in, like, what are the stories that really represent the emotional side of King? And Rose Matter is a story that is really brutal in a lot of ways, but. Um, and you know it was released around the same time as Gerald's Game. It was part of that trilogy, mm-hmm. so it's like uh, I could see him, and nobody's optioned that. Like it's funny, like nobody wants to make that. And I can see Flanagan. He that's the dude who went and made Gerald's Game. Like he might be like, hey, I could do Rose Matter. Yeah. And the thing is, I would watch the hell out of. Oh, it. I, I mean, I'm, at this point, anything he touches with King or anything in, he does in general, I'm I'm on board with. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited to see what he does with this next haunted series. But yeah, you know, that'll be fun. It'll be fun. Cool. But, well, this was a fun app. Uh, and think, we got more. Yeah, we got uh, our interview with the Newton brothers is uh, coming around the corner. And uh, we'll be back next that. week with our episode on the book. Yeah. So stay tuned and uh, enjoy the interview. But before you do, long days and pleasant, and pleasant nights. These empty devils, they'll eat what shines. And they've noticed that little girl. Hi, this is Andy Grush, uh, one of the Newton brothers. And this is Taylor Stewart, the other Newton brother. (laughs) You know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask was, you know, this is your seventh collaboration with Flanagan, I believe. Yep. So how did you two first meet? (laughs) Uh, We we met on Oculus. That was the first film that we we met on. And... um, we, on that film, we actually came in to interview. It was, there was a short list of composers, and we interviewed with Mike and his producing partner, Trevor Macy. And um, we just we, we hit it off right away. And, and I think that, you know, from that moment on, we've always had just a similar aesthetic, and we sort of understand, at least we understand the direction Mike wants to go. And we, I think we, we also have a similar understanding of of the listening of to a project as a project goes, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like everything in life has like this, this sort of like wave that it takes on. Um, and, and films I think are the same and that, you know, Mike has a very specific intention in mind when he goes into these projects and we go down that road with him, but then we kind of shift as, as, as things shift, you know, in, in, in terms of like how the project changes or how scenes change or how he sees, his vision and um, and being that he has that specific idea in mind, you know, a lot of times we have to go through a lot of ideas together with him to find what's working because initially in conversations, you know, the three of us will sit down and agree that, you know, Hey, let's do this for this scene. And then we'll do it in a few different versions and we feel like it's, it's, it's not quite working or something's changing and Mike's pretty good about like, hey, let's try something else. Let's 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 get really bizarre and try something crazy. And I think that his being open to us trying really wackadoo shit, I think, is like really helpful in the process because we're able to sort of narrow down what's working and what's not. Sorry, that was a much longer answer than you probably wanted. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> 
clearly he's admired your work. You guys are first on the dial all the time for him. The thing about Mike is that, um, you know, he, he, he tends to be very specific about what he wants. And as, as much as he's very collaborative, he also, he, he's going for a specific thing. And I think a lot of times, not just composers, we've seen it happen to set designers and, um, you know, different, different departments. And, and they'll, they'll basically kind of listen to them and then just keep doing the wrong thing and not, not, you know, uh, not going and, and really listening to what, what the project needs that his, his kind of his focus of what he wants. And, you know, he gives them chances and stuff. And, and I don't think that they, they do the, the, you know, what's needed. So um, I don't think that that relationship in that area lasts because, you know, somebody wants something, they, they want their project to be as best as it can be. Mm-hmm. They have a, you know, a very specific idea. And I feel like um, as a composer, you really, really need to, to listen and understand. And yes, you need to bring your ideas to the table, but you really need to understand what the, the you know, what the director and the producer want to do and you need to, to do it. And I feel too many times, you know, um, sometimes, I, I mean, I know friends of mine who are composers on, on big stuff as well. And, and they are just like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to make changes to this. It's perfect. Uh, and Andy and I don't really take that mentality. We, we will basically um, stay up all night and, and bleed to death, basically, to get whatever needs to get done. And I think Mike knows that. And uh, not to say that we, you know, we... Um, you know, we, we sit there and get, you know, we're masochists, not, not to say that, but we will do whatever it takes to get done. And, and we've, and we've, you know, we've done that on occasions where we've had to, not just for Mike, but for other directors, we will, we'll stay up all night because there's no time and it needs to be done the next day or it's going to be put into a screening or something. So I think Mike, Mike understands how we work and I think it aligns with what he wants. And obviously we're big, fanboys of just Mike himself as a director. And, and we just both think he's super, you know, incredibly talented. And, um, you know, we're always humbled by every project we're on and we try to like, uh, work as hard and set the, the bar even higher and try to keep going. And I, and I, you know, and I think along that way, we've become friends and I, and I, you know, if Mike ever needed anything, you know, I, I've had personal stuff that's happened over the years of our relationship and he's, He's, you know, I came over to his house and he's like, here, have another bottle of wine. And, you know, <laughs> three, <laughs> nice. three hours later, you know, <laughs> we're nice. watching, you know, Thin Red Line or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that's sort of funny on that is that um, that uh, we were at Mike's house for a party like two months ago and Taylor was going through his vinyl collection with him. And we never really thought about this in all the time we worked with him until that night and Taylor brought up a point was like, we listen, we have the exact same taste in music. Like all the, oh, all of his vinyl collection is like the same soundtrack and bands that, that we have. And that's without, that's without us like, Hey man, you should check out this band or you have, you seen this movie? It's just like, without doing any of that, we have the same record collection, which is always pretty funny. I think. What were some, <laughs> what were some matches that you had? <laughs> Oh, uh, t- Taylor, you were there. You want to go through like some of those things? <laughs> the soundtracks? Yeah. Like the, when you were flipping yeah, through yeah, the I vinyl? Mean, I mean, uh, Mike, Mike is just very, uh, you know, he, he has a, the same kind of taste as we do. You know, I, I would say like, I believe he had Cocoon, Rudy, oh which are some of my favorite soundtracks. Nice. Uh, Thin Red Line. Um, Classic. I think he, 
had uh, Edward Scissorhands. Uh, I think he had just a, a bunch of dif- you know different soundtracks uh, along that line. Because I, I remember just skipping through a bunch, and I was like, wow, this, these are like the same things I like, you know. Um, <laughs> and even and even um, there's an artist named Gregory Allen Isakoff that that he. <laughs> He used a song of Gregory's at the end of season one of Haunting of Hill House. And mm-hmm. what's so funny is that my sister and I had been going to see Gregory's not like a huge artist, but a, a fairly well-known artist. But my sister and I would go see him every time he would come through L.A. And Mike and Taylor and I were on the stage one day and Mike was like listening to one of his tracks. And it was like, oh, you know that guy? And he's like, yeah. Kate and I are going to go see him at the Santa Barbara Bowl in a few weeks. And I was like, so are me and my sister. It was just like, wow. And then we ended up, not we, we didn't pick the song, but Mike picked the song uh, to put in the end of uh, The Haunting of Hill House. But it's just so funny that the aesthetic is, I mean, so similar. It's an artist that, you know, I had been listening to for years. So I think that that's just a funny coincidence that's worked out well for all of us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you kind of need to have that marriage, especially given that he seems to work really fast. I mean, all his turnaround has been pretty impeccable. Like to go from the haunting of Hill house last year to already have this colossal project in theaters, which was originally supposed to be out in like January, 2020. (laughs) They bumped it back. Yeah. Are you used to it this pace now? I mean, is is this faster than, you know, other filmmakers that you work with? I mean, yeah. The answer to that is yes. Yeah, it is. It is. It is faster. Um, But I think, um, you know, Andy and I have talked about this before, you know, Mike is super efficient and he's, he's very deliberate in his choices and he, um, I mean, I think, I don't know that he sleeps. I'm pretty sure that he just like writes his scripts and then he edits the entire film in his head yeah. and putting it together while he's writing it. And then when he goes and, you know, I've, I've seen the, his setup, I've seen how, uh, you know, how he constructs it and, and him and Simniari, Michael Simniari, his DP, they just like attack it. And, and, and with such like, you know, deliberate specific things that it's, it's, it's an art form to watch and it's, it's really quite impressive. And on top of that, he, the guy can actually write music too and play, plays piano beautifully. It's, it's funny. I mean, I, I always joke to Andy that he could probably score his own films if he had time, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, he's just, he's, he's super busy. I mean, he's even busier now than he was a year and a half ago. I mean, I, I mean, haunting a Hill house pretty much just like, you know, he's, he's, he's so busy now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Taylor and I have a Taylor and I have a joke like on sort of prepping for projects because usually when when Mike is shooting everybody's busy and they don't have time to you know reach out about like hey we're going to we're going to go over the film or the TV show you know this week or next week or in a month or whatever date. So Taylor and I always just know that from the day he finishes shooting we will likely see a cut 2 to 3 weeks after his last day of shooting which is pretty much been the case on every project i think is am i right taylor is that that's about right huh? yeah yeah he, i mean he's it's incredible i mean and dr sleep is no that was there was no dr sleep was not an exception it was the same thing i want to say about three weeks after he got back he played us his first sort of cut of what he had put together um Good God. Which is he's, interesting. he's incre- incredible he's incredible he's incredibly fast yeah i mean he's He's yeah, he's 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 a sizable hold. I mean, the guy is has so many talents. It's it's unreal. And I, 
I say that just as a just as a viewer and what I've seen of him. He's just you know, and I don't know if you've ever spoken to him, but he's also just a very humble guy. So it's you know. Oh no, he he's great. Yeah, we we had a the, yeah. the podcast had a chance to talk to him uh, about two years ago for Gerald's game, and um, we were just all enamored and just just love the guy. And, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just it's just such a cool. It's just a cool visionary to have tied to Stephen King uh, right now because he clearly just gets the source material. I mean, he's almost like a historian in that way. And um, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you is that, you know, given how indebted he is to both King and Kubrick on this film, I wondered, you know, what was it his idea to kind of model some of the score off of, you know, Kubrick's original? And what were some of the earlier discussions going into this project? I mean, the initially what we were on the mixing stage of haunting of Hill house and we would take breaks from the stage and walk outside and Mike would sort of talk about what he had in his mind. And he knew that he wanted to incorporate that sort of main theme from the shining, which mm-hmm. is that Gregorian chant. It's the DS Ray. Um, he knew that he wanted to incorporate that. And then he also knew that he wanted to try to achieve the same feeling of dread that you feel in the shining, but also sort of expanding from that dread into sort of the, the magical world yeah. of the next chapter of Abra, like Dan, Dan being the one who tried to mute the shine and Abra being the one who just kind of embraces it and wants to, wants to use it for a positive thing. And so that was sort of, that was the initial conversation with Mike. So from there, I mean, Taylor and I just deep dove into the history of all the music so that we could sort of understand how everything was used in the shining, where it came from, how it was recorded, what, what everyone did that way we could sort of start our approach from the same sort of world without having to, you know, because we didn't want to just do the same thing. We wanted to be the expansion, which is Dr. Sleep. Um, And that was the, you know, at first that was the thing that, that kind of terrified Taylor and I, because it's a big, you know, you're coming off of The Shining and not only coming off The Shining, but coming off of a movie that has brilliant 20th century composers. Um, and some of those pieces are like music edited on top of each other mm-hmm. to create more sense of confusion. So, you know, initially it's like, well, how do we how do how do we do that? But it's just, you know, one step at a time. We just kind of dove into all of the elements that were involved. And then it was really great for Mike to allow us to try the insane things that we tried. There were a lot of things we didn't think would work, but we had ideas like, you know, Dan wants to mute his shine and his, his shine. There's some terror from what happened to him when he was a kid. And in Dr. Sleep, he's sort of terrified by the wind. So Taylor and I were initially thinking like, what, what sort of wind instrument can we use? And we thought, well, we could look into, you know, woodwinds or what sort of, instruments like that would work, but we decided those were too sort of specific. So we went into the wind harp and used a wind harp because it's, there's no ego involved in playing a wind harp. It's just like the wind is blowing and it makes noise and the noise Mm -hmm. changes based on the, the wind. And then to sort of counteract that with Abra, Abra's character, um, we used chimes for her because chimes are, they are, you do have an ego involved. You're playing the chimes, but there's still some magic to them. You can't really control exactly what they're going to do. And so that was sort of an early jumping off point. And from there, we just sort of got into, you know, 12 tone music and 
I could go on and on. I'd probably bore the hell out of you, but no, no. I mean, <laughs> that's, where we, that's where we started. <laughs> I mean, that's literally the first thing I thought of just even when I heard the first you know, few tracks off the soundtrack and just being like, Jesus Christ, I can't even imagine the process to this. And, and, and then I started wondering like how many times you actually had to watch the shining. <laughs> like, I, so many times. I, I imagine you're fried <laughs> from it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we were actually flying back from the shoot um, in Atlanta and Taylor and I were sitting next to each other on the plane and we'd both been watching the shining a bunch and taking notes in a notebook and post-it notes in the book. And, and I got like 10 minutes away from the end of the shining and I just closed my laptop and kind of sighed and just leaned back. And Taylor was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. I'm just exhausted. I can't watch the end of this again. I'm just <laughs> like, not in a bad way, but it's just so in a, in a good way. You know, I don't mean that in a negative way, but yeah. it's just the, the film, when you get to the end, you're exhausted. And that's by design, of course, and brilliantly done, but it's, uh, it, it, it taxes you for sure. Yeah, there, there are moments of silence sometimes in the film, but for the most part, it, it's a long run, a long jog in terms of the music continuing and going and going. And it almost feels like, and this is something that you absolutely captured, Dr. Sleep, it almost feels like it just kind of subsides and just like roams a little bit and lingers at the bottom and then it'll rise up and then it'll come back down again. And I, I can imagine watching the film as a composer, it's got to be exhausting <laughs> to think about, oh, we're going to have to kind of mirror this. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's incessant. And I think you get that feeling, uh, especially with um, with your score. Except I feel like there's there's even more, you know. And I wondered the heartbeat was that something that you started with, maybe that you, you that you maybe like worked around even when it's not particularly present in the score. Like, is it something that was almost like a metronome for you? Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it was it was really useful in the uh, technical aspect of driving some some sequences forward mm-hmm. you know, with motion. Um, and we would slow it, you know, speed it up and slow it down. And sometimes it would mirror what was happening or characters. And it just really got under your skin. And it kind of became one of the elements that we would use uh, with like, you know, when the shine was happening or the excite of the steam was occurring, uh, the, the excite of the heartbeat or, you know, would also start to, to speed up. And um, so we did different experiments with it. And, and Mike really wanted to, you know, he, he really, he thought it worked really well on the scene and, and so did we. So we kind of made it present and, and kind of come and go and, and, you know, adjust in tempo and tone and, and feel in, in mm. certain places. And also too, it's in the yeah. original Shining yeah. as well. So it's a good, it's a sprinkle of, I mean, we, we deliberately, there's things we specifically did to sprinkle certain things around to bring that world in. Because, you know, like with any sequel, you, you, you do a Star Wars movie or something like that, you have, you mm-hmm. have a lot of themes. And a film like this, you're dealing mainly with, you know, um, one theme or two themes, and then you have like a motif, and then there's these little things. And so we really uh, had a lot to, to, to figure out with um, tonality and texturing. Was the heartbeat pulled from the original film, or did you find a new sound for it? <laughs> I don't know why I'm so obsessed with the heartbeat. No, that was, that was, uh, that was actually, uh, Taylor's the big mad scientist between the two of us. So Taylor kind of designed like sort of printed like audio of that sound through, I don't know, one of, one of his synthesizers. And then, and then what we did was we created, um, I shouldn't say we Taylor created, like took that sound that he made and made it into sort of a, an instrument that we could, perform live because it was really important to us for the heartbeat to not just be like 
like, like a steady in. heartbeat because we yeah because yeah, we we didn't want it to just be like hey here's here's a sample of a heartbeat and just let's have it repeat at like a a normal like you know 120 bpm pulse for you know two and a half minutes so what we would do is we would perform it on a keyboard for each scene and what's Jesus really Christ. funny is like in yeah in God. yeah we, this, this has been like a year of like insanity for us like in some cases the heartbeat would be playing to a, a, sort of a relative tempo and the orchestra would be playing. But then the idea would be that the orchestra would keep playing at a certain tempo while the heartbeat would either accelerate or decelerate. And we would play that live so that it didn't, we didn't want it to be a tempo map so that it was not like mechanical. We want it to feel very real. And in some cases it's really funny because like on the mixing stage, our music editor at one point uh, early on was like, well, that what's why the, the heartbeat's not, it, we need to like line up the tempo. And we we're like, no, 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 no. We, we don't, no, 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 no. It needs to be a little off. And so it's, it's naturally a, a, a little bit off. And it was a challenge because when we were recording the orchestra, we wanted the orchestra to be playing with the heartbeat as much as possible. But then when it, when it, goes off tempo we'd have to mute it on the mixing board so that the players could continue playing at a different tempo so it was uh a lot of a lot of thought kind of went into that that heartbeat and and all the places that it, it appears yeah i'm getting anxiety thinking about it right now <laughs> just just being in that room be like uh just uh, start start it again um here we go okay what uh, yeah god what composers from the shining did you find difficult to reimagine when you were kind of deconstructing their works um we you know i was actually very i mean we're both pretty familiar with the soundtrack to the shining mm -hmm. um we didn't know you know just being geeks of music and and fans of ligeti and bartok so we knew we knew um everything we didn't know the blueprints and the history of you know, um, like Wendy Carlos, for example, like, you know, we didn't know, I mean, she wrote an entire score, yeah. um, and up some beautiful music. Like it was, it was great. And, and I got to hear it and, and it was very good. Um, only, only just the, the re the arrangement she did at the main titles is, is what made it into the film and yeah. everything else he ended up going, going, you know, with needle drops. So some sounds, it, it, there were some sounds, some, some, oh, like, right. And there were sounds, I think. Some, yeah. 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 There were some sounds as well. Yeah. So I, I, I think, uh, it was interesting just seeing how, you know, we, we just read the history and of, of Kubrick and, and how, you know, the music kind of interacted with the film. And so we were kind of studied that and that was actually very informative more than the technicality of it. Cause we both knew, we both knew certain things. We knew what Mike liked and we tried a bunch of things, you know, uh, there's the kind of single accelerating kind of percussion, um, which is signature of, of really, of, of, you know, of that piece. Um, and so there's certain things we did and tone, but, uh, there was, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's not very much a chance you can play music like that in a film, like classical 12 tone, you know, it's not really, I, I'm trying to think of another film off the top of my head that's like that. And, and it's, it's not nothing that I can think of really right now. And, and it's, it's just very, very um, specific to that film, I feel mm -hmm. like, and the way they used it and interpretation of it. So we really wanted to just be in the tone in the world. And then we were very particular about what sounds or what things we were going to bring in as 
as like, um, you know, Easter eggs or, or sprinkling and stuff like that, because we wanted it to feel like, especially in certain places, like in the shine, like in the overlook, we wanted it to feel like you're in the film and, you know, from the shining. And then we also wanted to expand the world and go into like the true knot and all these other characters that Andy mentioned. So I think that was the original thing. I mean, we, we did, you know, we looked at the, obviously the sheet music, I mean, which I, I had already looked at before when I was, younger my teens and, and Andy probably already knew oh, by wow. heart, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but we, yeah, we both, we both just kind of looked at everything all over again. We looked at all the things and, and we did our, our history. We had quite a bit of time to do our research. And then we decided to pick and choose what we wanted to kind of like, you know, be inspired from and not. Interesting. Yeah. And there's, there's an interesting, this might be too boring and nerdy, but like an element of 12th, 12 tone music is how to apply chords in that. And it's mm -hmm. endless. You can do, I mean, there's like 12 tone calculators online where you can just like, you can drink like a, you know, like a bottle of tequila and enter your own like sequence and come up with these like mathematical, like crazy things. But what Taylor and I found was like, we came up with some pieces, some 12 tone sort of pieces that were working but then what we found that ended up sort of like bridging the gap between like the old and the new were these like polychords, which is basically taking, um, you know, two chords and putting them together. So you have six notes and then two more chords for another six notes, which make up all 12 notes. So in those, in playing them together, you, you, you basically are playing every note in the scale and if you craft it just right, we found that it, it sort of the sequence that we used sort just of right. sounded <laughs> yet it, it had to be just right. I mean, it was, too, uh, yeah, and it got really tricky on the, on the orchestra stage because every note is sort of battling every other note because oh they're God. not chords that are meant to be played together. So in some cases, you know, what we had mocked up sounded like what we wanted to, but then once the orchestra played it, it was like, no, 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 no the first violins need to play much quieter because they're playing the G sharp and it's rubbing with, you know, the, the G natural that the woodwinds are playing right behind them. So, and it got like really particular, but luckily we have a, a great orchestrator and conductor and he was very great about like, you know, adjusting those things as we needed to adjust them so that they sounded just how we needed them to sound. And it, 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 we were very happy with it, so it was very fun. God, such a such mathematical minds <laughs> that you'd have to have going into this. Uh, boy, um, were there particular scenes that that proved challenging? Um, yeah, there were. I mean, I think early on we we definitely uh, tried some things and did some things that kind of informed us what was working, what wasn't working. But strangely enough, the first two pieces we we tackled that were in our kind of our suites. We you know we tend to write these big suites of stuff that we put in, in, in places um, before we have pitcher. And, and um, one of the things we were trying, it ended up just being that in the film, actually two places. And it, it wasn't too, like, it wasn't too, we did some, you know, we adjusted and did some things, went back and forth. But we ended up kind of doing what we originally did. And I think that was made it very easy in those aspects. I think, I think the, the hard part was, at least probably for me was the baseball boy scene. Mm. Um, just, just because of, you know, the balance of what's happening on screen. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we did, we did this, some crazy stuff where 
the, there's like uh, tempos constantly changing and, you know, the, the choir is, is playing something different than something else. And it's, it's to create this kind of chaos. And um, I think that, that scene was a little more challenging than, than others um, because you, you don't want to, you don't want to give away certain things and you want to nail certain things. So it was kind of finding that, that balance, but overall, I, I feel like it, it went pretty smoothly. Yeah, it's, it's strangely enough, I think the hardest things were the things that were probably the easiest in execution. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, for example, the, the scene of, um, of uh, Danny and, and Dick sitting on the bench earlier on in the film, they, um, that, was, that was one of the cues that Taylor had mentioned that was like the first thing we wrote and was pretty much you know, 95% done in the, in the first pass, um, as well as the sort of the first interaction of, of Rose the Hat with Andy and, and Dan, that sequence as well. But then there were sequences like, you know, at the end of the film, there was a cue that was really difficult um, that we ended up pulling. Um, and it's funny because, you know, Mike, Mike looked at us and, and it's like, you guys are going to murder me, but let's try taking this cue out. And it's the cue at the end. It's, well, it's no longer in there, but it was at the end of the film. Um, and it was a tricky one to get it where, you know, where it was working because you ride that line of not wanting to get in the way and mm-hmm. instructing viewers how to feel. And yeah. I think especially because it's coming off of The Shining, I think that's where Mike really commandeered it beautifully. You know, we, we spent weeks working on this cue that was more of a sort of a beautiful piece and very subtle and got it to a place where he loved it and producers loved it and studio loved it. But then for him to be able to pull back and go, what happens if we take it out? And we took it out and it's, it's very effective. It works great because it doesn't tell viewers how to feel. It allows like all three of us like on this call to feel differently about the ending in however the shining affected us. And I think that's, a place where, you know, another way where Mike like really shines and just letting the creative sort of speak to everyone uniquely. Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I mean, and honestly, it's, that seems more in line with King um, too, because I mean, a lot of his books kind of end in, in, in a sense there, you do infer different things from it for sure. I mean, even going back to some of his classic works from the seventies, especially the stand, you're supposed oh, to take yeah. away different emotions from it. And, totally. you know, even just listening to you right now, and, and this is something that definitely, you know, infer just having listened to the score just firsthand, th- there's a lot of love here. And, and, and I look back at like, you know, a lot of the, the scores that have to kind of lean upon the past for other, you know, horror films. Halloween comes to mind where, you know, you have like the sequels and everyone's kind of drawing from John Carpenter's work, but it seems um, there's a tacky, it it, it could be tacky, you know, and people just kind of take away the obvious stuff and kind of just, you know, flesh in some lazy things that, that, that bridge things together. But that's, that's definitely not the case here. I mean, it's just a total 180 here where it's just, there are a lot of intricacies that are welded into this. And even just talking to you right now, I, I see that. And so I wondered, what are your roots with The Shining alone? I mean, you mentioned that you had learned some of the notes as a teen. I mean, is this a film and is Stephen King an author that you grew up with? Yeah, I mean, um, I still remember, right I, I remember the first time I saw The Shining. I remember where I was. I was in I was in Big Bear, California at a house on like a retreat with like a bunch of my like eighth grade classmates and like 20 of us started watching it and like four of us were left over at the end watching it and the rest were either asleep or gone or scared or, and I just remember how I, I, I hadn't, I, I had not read the, the book at that point, 
but I remember, I still today remember how I felt watching it. Like you were, and, you know, and I was young. So, you know, granted I was taking different things from it than were intended, but I think that that's, what's so great about films and music is that it affects everyone differently, depending on age or mm-hmm. background, where you're from, like what your experience is. And for me, it, it terrified me, but it more, it, it kind of raised questions in me more like equally as much as it terrified me. And it made me want to watch it again and want, and wonder why I was feeling that way, especially at that age when you're so curious, you know, mm-hmm. you feel a certain way and you're not, you're not an adult who's responding like, Oh, I feel like my feelings are hurt. Why? Because this, you know, at a young age, you just want to explore like, well, what's, what's going on here. It's almost like you have an adventure in your mind. And, and that's, that is where sort of the Stephen King adventure began for me. And then it was just, I mean, his stories are so unique and interesting. And I think that they have an element of um, supernatural mixed with reality. And there's sort of a metaphor within all of that that's different for everyone, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but so anyway, that's that's the short answer for me. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Taylor, what about uh, you? Yeah, yeah I was going <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, I was leading to you. Uh, no, for me, I mean, I, I think I was probably I don't know, ten or eleven, and and I wasn't supposed to be watching it, and um, and so I and I was watching it at home, and and I remember just being I I'm, I didn't really get nightmares from films too much except mm-hmm. for The Elephant Man, um, but uh, yeah, that one stayed with me for days, and I just couldn't shake it. So I, I later on when I got into my teens, I you know it came on TV again, and I was curious about it and I watched again and then I kind of uh, just really, really just taken in again by it. I, I was amazed at how a film so old that could just be so, so nerve wracking and scary. And then of course that led me down an entire another path and which led me into psycho and all the other stuff. So um, it's uh, I think that for me was the beginning of it. And I read, uh, I read part of it when I was really young Um when I forget what age I was, but I felt like I was young, but, uh, and I remember just being horrified by the clown. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that kind of introduced me to the King. And then from there, I, I, um, you know, uh, there was a couple other books that I, I got into and, and that's kind of, that was kind of the venture into, into King. I think, I think, uh, being a, just a big fan of, of storytelling and um you know whenever we get to work with a director who's passionate about telling a story rather than just flashing images and like the focus is on the story and the character rather than on images i'm always i'm always you know wanting to you know we're wanting to beat the best it can be and we're trying to hard to to find the, the intricacies and the details and i think that's usually what that's that's probably why we we exhaust certain projects. Like we read the books, we, we, we study up on it. We come prepared. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess working with Flanagan, who's clearly not done, uh, you know, roaming around King's dominion that you're there, you're probably going to be working on another King property in the future. I imagine. <laughs> um, I hope know. so. Yeah. That would be, I mean, obviously, yeah, I love, yeah. I, you know, I never met the man. Um, you know, we kind of, we kind of heard things um, through Mike and, and, you know, obviously it's in Gerald's game. Uh, I was shocked at what Mike did with Gerald's game. Oh, you know, that yeah. book was basically unsummable. Like it, you couldn't even, it wasn't even, he couldn't make it into a film and Mike did. So yeah. Yeah. Impressive. 
it's it's crazy impressive i mean it just seems like he just continues to just keep taking like the hardest projects to adapt in king's in king's <laughs> canon and it's like well this unfilmable totally. book and then i'm gonna make a yeah. sequel to stephen king that's also not a sequel to the book but it is in a way it's, jesus Christ. i mean it's just like a fucking pretzeled project that i that i think any filmmaker probably would have go into an epileptic shock but um uh so uh one of the things i, I really wanted to discuss was you've worked with hans zimmer and, and danny elfman was there anything you learned from them have you kept in touch what were those collaborations like I mean, on the, on the, I can, I can speak on the, on the Danny front. I mean, it, it's so, it's so awesome to learn from the, you know, the, in anything you do, I think in life, it's great to learn from the men and women that come before you. It's just such a, uh, I don't know. There's just so much to be had from experience. And I think that, you know, being able to, to work on uh, before I wake with, with Danny was, I mean, it was incredible. I remember the first day we left his studio and we were all playing back cues for each other. And it was just like, it felt like it was not like reality was not correct. Mm-hmm. Everything felt just like, wow. Cause it's, you know, cause you do, you do learn, you do learn things and you learn the things that you don't expect. It's, and it's, I don't think it's the things you can learn from, a session in a class where someone's talking to you, you learn things from the nuances that happen in, you know, in a recording session when we're recording orchestra with Danny and, and how he goes about things. And, and I think just being aware of those things in that experience was the, the, was a big sort of, you know, opportunity for us to, you know, learn more and, and, and get more education and, and obviously fan out a little too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor can speak on on the on the Han side. He he was over there. Uh, yeah, I mean that was a long time ago. I was probably 2005, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, he at the time he needed an assistant, and his other assistant was going uh, leading on to something else. And so um, I kind of just jumped in, and and I was there for a bit, and and I got a you know work with a lot of different composers and and Hans, and I I learned a ton. Yeah, I mean obviously. You know, the thing about Hans that I find uh, always consistently impressive is how how he's able to take something down to the form of simplicity. Mm-hmm. And he's making it so simple, but so effective for the storytelling. And I found that to be um, really quite, he does that with such uh, charm and, uh, you know, conviction that it's, it's, it's not, I feel like he, it's his own thing. You know, he, 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 he doesn't try to imitate someone. So I, I, I really enjoyed that experience, that part of it. I think, um, you know, I, that particular camp, you know, it's, it's seven hours a day, you know, 15 Jesus. hour days, at least when I was there, it's not, I don't know what it is now, but uh, I definitely learned a lot. And I, I enjoyed the time um, that I was there in, in, in certain aspects. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I got to meet some, some other composers that I'm, well, really, I think the only composer I'm, I'm still pretty good friends with is Lorne, um, Lorne Balf. Uh, oh, nice. But, uh, but super he's a, talented yeah, guy. A, yeah. Super yeah. talented guy. Great, compo- great composer. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience, obviously. And, and he's, one thing I do also, I, I think it's pretty impressive, is just how he pushes forward on technology, which is mm-hmm. uh, there's definitely, you know, um, the more of that we need, uh, you know, the, the, it really just helps the, the writing process. And so I was able to see how he kind of incorporated that. And, and I come from a very technical background as well. And so it really did help me 
uh, kind of see that that aspect of curiosity of, of, of music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm always shocked when I when I go from some of his stuff from the 80s and then also, you know, from, you know, today, especially going from something like, you know, like Rain Man and then going into like Batman oh, Begins yeah. and then going into, you know, stuff he's doing with Dunkirk and Interstellar. It's yeah, just like, the, Jesus, oh, like man. talk about reinventing the wheel. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I I agree on the, you know, the technical expansion and I'm always... I'm always just fascinated in, in in finding scores that seemingly take unorthodox instrumentation for different genres that I never would have imagined being married in that respect. And it's so it's so encouraging to like hear the stories of you know let's say on Interstellar we know like what a big feat that was and how many crazy technical aspects that came up against and and you know to achieve that sound and then even going back to i mean we when we were doing dr sleep before we even wrote any music we taylor and i had a a long sort of like research and development process where we were just listening 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 and watching old films and something that we stumbled on was you know the forbidden planet score Mm -hmm. um they were it was the, the the barons this couple they were really sort of the pioneers of like electronic music in, in film. And it was, it was, uh, I had actually never seen the film until we sort of were researching things and to see that film and read the story about how they created that score. It's just sort of a similar, it sort of all ties together to sort of the technical aspect of the, the trial and error of, of, going through different creative processes. Um, I don't know what my point was, but I just, that sort of came to mind when we were talking about Hans too. No, <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I mean, even like, you know, like Wendy Carlo, it, like it's, it's, it's unreal. Like some of the stuff that, you know, she had been doing, you know, before even with a clockwork orange, oh, obviously yeah. that, you know, led into the stuff that was going on with the shining. So you were able to listen to her, her complete score that wasn't actually used altogether or yeah, we were, yeah, I mean, as far, they, as I, they, as far as I know. Yeah, they have it over at, they had it over at Warner Brothers. So we were able to listen through to some of it. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, really though, the stuff that is in the film is really so in, impressive, even whether it's a performance of the DSE Ray that, that, you know, she and, and Rachel did, or even just some of the crazy sounds they, they did in the mm-hmm. film. And it's just, in time, I mean, like we were saying before, all of the other stuff that, that she had done is just uh, yeah it's in- incredible yeah because there's that synth line that's in like rocky mountains um or rocky mountain that's like on the original score that's just it's so i don't know it's just it kind of seemed like it was like predicting everything that was going to come across in the 80s with uh yeah. with what they were doing a sense at the time but um Look, I've I've kept you on for for way too long but uh i just wanted to say you know looking ahead um, you've got the grudge next year. Um, do you have any other projects lined up? Are you going to be returning for, you know, haunting a Bly Manor? Um, we, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. We will be yes. doing haunting. Yeah. And in fact, we were, we were over there, uh, yesterday, um, looking at some of that stuff. So it's, yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about that. And we've got, yeah, the grudge comes out in January. Uh, and that was a lot of, we fun. finished it. It's done. By oh, the way. wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's the, yeah we kind of it, it was kind of funny because we, we finished Doctor Sleep and went right into that. Jesus God, <laughs> and it's uh, <laughs> it's it's super. It's uh, I I can say with accuracy it's better than the first Grudge. It's, yeah, it's Nick Nick Pesch, the director. He just did his own thing to it, and it's it's much it's much better and, and strong. So 
Very excited. Yeah, yeah. Nick Pesh is, is just a, God, what a like a brutal filmmaker. And uh, so I can't wait to see what he does with that film for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. No, thank, thank you. you so much. Uh, we'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thank you. Right. You too. Appreciate it. Take care. Consequence Podcast Network.